Oscar Podcast Part 2. of light, and the stupidity in that instance was the absence of me. Catherine, I've got students in my office now. Students. Undergrads. I don't know. From the looks of it, they want to sell me a Brooks Brothers franchise. All right. Good morning. Good morning, sir. I'm Cameron Winklevoss, and this is my brother, Ty. And you're here because... Either of you can answer. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. I thought you were reading the letter. I read the letter. Well, we came up with an idea for a website called Harvard Connection, and we've since changed the name to Connect You. And Mark Zuckerberg stole that idea. I understand. And I'm asking what you want me to do about it. Well, sir, in the Harvard Student Handbook, which is distributed to each freshman, under the heading Standards of Conduct in the Harvard Community, it says the college expects all students to be honest and forthcoming in their dealings with members in this community. Students are required to respect public and private ownership and instances of theft, misappropriation, And, yes, sir, punch me in the face. Go ahead. <clears throat> or... Unauthorized use will result in disciplinary action, including the requirement to withdraw from the college. You memorize that instead of doing what? What my brother and I came here today to ask of you, respectfully, sir, of course, is it's against university rules to steal from another student, plain and simple. You've spoken to your housemaster. Yes, sir. And the housemaster made a recommendation to the ad board, but the ad board won't see us. Have you tried dealing with the other student directly? Mr. Zuckerberg hasn't been responding to any of our emails or phone calls for the last two weeks. He doesn't answer when we knock on his door at Kirkland, and the closest I've come to dealing with him face-to-face is when I saw him on the quad and chased him through Harvard Square. You chased him? I, I, I saw him, and I know he saw me. I went after him, and then he disappeared. I don't see this as a university issue. Of course this is a university issue. There's a code of ethics and an honor code, and he violated You enter into a code of ethics with the university, not with each other. I'm sorry, President Summers, but what you just said makes no sense to me at all. I'm devastated by that. What, what my brother means is if Mark Zuckerberg walked into our dorm room and, and stole our computer, that would be a university I issue. I don't know. This office doesn't handle petty larceny. This isn't petty larceny. Right. This idea is potentially worth millions of dollars. Millions? Yes. You might just be letting your imaginations run away with you. Sir, I honestly don't think you're in any position to make that call. I was the U.S. Treasury Secretary. I'm in some position to make that call. Well, letting our imaginations run away with us is exactly what we were told to do in your freshman well, address. And I would suggest that you let your imaginations run away with you on a new project. You would? Yes, everyone at Harvard's inventing something. 
Harvard undergraduates believe that inventing a job is better than finding a job. So I'll suggest again that the two of you come up with a new, new project. I, I'm sorry, sir, but that's not the point. Please, arrive at the point. You don't have to be an intellectual property expert to understand the difference between right and wrong. You're saying that I don't. Of course I'm not saying that, sir. I'm saying that. Really? Sir. And how did they get this appointment? Colleagues of their father. Let me tell you something, Mr. Winklevoss, Mr. Winklevoss, since you're on the subject of right and wrong, this action, this meeting, the two of you being here, is wrong. It's not worthy of Harvard. It's not what Harvard saw in you. You don't get special treatment. We never asked. Oh, wait, uh, just start another project? If you like, have, like we're making a diorama for a science fair? If you have fair? a problem with that, Mr. We Winklevoss, never asked for special the treatment. courts are always at your disposal. Is there anything else I can do for you? Oh, you can take the harvester, man. Tie. Thank you very much for your time, sir. We would just have a podcast where you listen to the movie for two hours, and that would be the argument right there. <laughs> it sells itself by just by listening to it, because that dialogue, that, that screenplay is so, so, so well-timed, so perfectly um, articulated that it's incredible, isn't it? It is, and I have to. I wasn't recording, so I have to redo the intro, which is hi and welcome to episode 71 of Oscar Podcast. This is part two, where we're going to talk about the social network. Um, that was a wonderful scene written by Aaron Sorkin, directed by David Fincher, uh, with the great Army Hammer as the Winkle Vi. Um, it, the, we're, we're going to be talking about the social network and the, what I consider to be the absolute best film of 2010. What a lot of people would consider to be the best film of the tens altogether, over the, over the past ten years, maybe. It's certainly up there. Yeah. Um, that that clip is a good a good choice because I think embedded within that clip is is part of the reason why it wasn't as successful with the Academy as all of us hoped that it. W- would be and that's that i think that it, it, it's the smartness and the sharpness of sorkin's writing it's very very sorkin-y and i say that as a person who has always loved sorkin and i even loved the half season of newsroom that i watched just because of him but it puts off a lot of people because there's a there's a stylization to it because normal people even incredibly intelligent people don't have conversations like that. It, it's very, very stylized, and we're caught up in this notion these days of realism in our cinema, and this doesn't doesn't fit that mold for some people, and I think that's why it turns them off. I think they're wrong, and I think realism is overrated, but I, th- I think it's one of the clues as to why it, it didn't win. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, I'll, before I talk about the, the quick history of that Oscar year, um, I'll just say the one thing that stands out to me about The Social Network, a film I've seen like, I don't know, 50 times or something like that. But um, actually, when I interviewed David Fincher, he said, you ha- you know, you need to seek like medical help for your problems <laughs> seeing this movie that many times. But, your addiction um, to The Social yeah, Network. No, he thought I was crazy. He still thinks that that, that is crazy seeing a movie that many times. But really, I, I just love it so much. Even watch, listening to that one scene just makes me smile because I you know, I really get off on collaborative perfection like that. And that is the Citizen Kane thing. That's to me the Hurt Locker. There are a lot of movies that fit that, but what's when the writing and the directing and the acting and the music and everything is in perfect harmony. It is like a rock song. It's like Stairway to Heaven. It's like a great rock song. Um, or a symphony. Or any kind of piece of perfectly collaborative uh 
performance art. And what it is to me is is the the push me pull you of David Fincher and Aaron Sorkin, which is Aaron Sorkin is really sappy and verbose, and David Fincher is the opposite. He's minimalist and he's cold, and the combination of them pushing together and butting heads and collaborating created this magnificent work. And I don't think this this script as written by Aaron Sorkin would have been as good of a movie directed by somebody else who would be a little more indulgent to Sorkin. I think Fincher kept him. You know, kept him tight in you know tightly reined, and I think that he and and Sorkin is a different kind of screenwriter than Fincher usually works with. He he's definitely more in the minimalist tradition. He doesn't like stylish writers for the most part. Although his new one is going to be a little more stylized, uh, it's going to be a lot more like Sorkin than his Another other. Another thing too about Fincher's particular style that matches well with Sorkin's style is that that kind of dialogue and that kind of scene doesn't just come together on the first take. You can't get that timing and that precision on the first take. You have to have a director who's willing to do 10 takes, 20 takes, 35 takes, 100 yeah, takes, like absolutely. as they legend and notoriously did, notoriously did with the first scene in the social network. They shot 99 takes, right? Which is also in order a to great get that. scene. Yeah, that's also a great scene. That 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 scene is flawless. I mean, you can watch mm-hmm. it over and over and, again. And it's flawless because of the of, of doing it over and over and over and over until you get it right. And in that way, I believe it's another comparison to Stairway Stairway to Heaven is that that is also the perfect recording of that of that song and probably never in any other time did it all come together exactly like that of all the other times that they performed that song it never came together in exactly that same perfect way right. so that recording preserves the actual perfect that moment when it, when everything came together just right and with okay. the film you can you can edit it together do it over and over until you get it right and edit all the best parts together. And that's something that pa- Fincher has the patience for that very few directors would have the patience to do. And he matches the rhythm of the script with the editing. Like, you hardly ever mm-hmm. see that in a movie. But if you watch it really close, these guys won, um, Kurt Baxter and Angus Wall won the Oscar for editing The Social Network. And you can see how it is so edit- edited tightly to the dialogue itself. In both that opening scene and this scene and in every other scene in the movie, the dialogue is so specific. It's as specific as the music um, because it, it all works in a rhythm. It's a, it's a very tightly wound rhythmic film throughout. Erica Albright's a bitch. Do you think that's because her family changed their name from Albrecht? Or do you think it's because all be you girls are bitches? For the record, she may look like a 34C, but she's getting all kinds of help from our friends at Victoria's Secret. She's a 34B, as in barely anything there. False advertising. (laughs) The truth is, she has a nice face. I need to do something to take my mind off her. Easy enough, except I need an idea. I'm a little intoxicated, I'm not gonna lie. So what if it's not even 10 p.m. and it's a Tuesday night? Really? The Kirkland Facebook is open on my desktop and some of these people have pretty horrendous Facebook pics. Oh no! Billy Olson's sitting here and had the idea of putting some of the pictures next to pictures of farm animals and have people vote on who's hotter. Good call, Mr. Olson. Yeah, it's on. 
not going to do the farm animals, but I like the idea of comparing two people together. It gives the whole thing a very Turing feel, since people's ratings of the pictures will be more implicit than, say, choosing a number to represent each person's hotness like they do on hotornot.com. The first thing we're going to need is a lot of pictures. Unfortunately, Harvard doesn't keep a public centralized Facebook, so I'm going to have to get all the images from the individual houses that people are in. Let the hacking begin. everything open and allow indexes in their Apache configuration, so a little wget magic is all that's necessary to download the entire Kirkland Facebook. Kids stuff. also open but with no indexes on Apache. I can run an empty search and it returns all the images in the database in a single page. And I can save the page and Mozilla will save all the images for me. Oh, it does. Excellent. Moving right along. Excuse me, everybody. You are at one of the oldest, one of the most exclusive clubs, not just at Harvard, but in the world. And I want to welcome you all to Phoenix Club's first party of the fall semester. <laughs> some security. They require a username password combo and I'm gonna go ahead and say they don't have access to the main FAS user database so they have no way of detecting an intrusion. Adams has no security but limits the number of results to 20 a page. All I need to do is break out the same script I used on Lowell and we're set. Quincy has no online Facebook. What a sham. Nothing I can do about that. Dunster is intense. Not only is there no public directory, but there's no directory at all. You have to do searches, and if your search returns more than 20 matches, nothing gets returned. And once you do get results, they don't link directly to the images. They link to a PHP that redirects or something. Weird. This may be difficult. I'll come back later. Hey, Shark Week's up. What? Beautiful fish. Thanks. is a little better. They still make you search, but you can do an empty search and get links to pages with every student's picture. It's slightly obnoxious that they only let you view one picture at a time, and there's no way I'm going to go to 500 pages to download pics one at a time. So it's definitely necessary to break out Emacs and modify that Perl script. So glad you said that because I was going to say too that not, it's not only the dialogue, it's the sound, it's the sound recording and, and the sound mixing too. I've seen the movie maybe not 50 times, but I've seen it 20 times. And when you see a movie 20 different times, you start to notice things that you cannot possibly catch the first time around. And scenes like the boardroom scenes, you can hear street sounds, you can hear street noise and honk, horns honking and things outside the window, and they're timed perfectly to be like like grace notes to the dialogue. You can hear things, you can hear. Incidental ambient sounds that, that interjected in, in in between the the lines of dialogue that are are like it's all orchestrated. It's all orchestrated. Yeah, every tiny thing is deliberate. It's hard. Mm -hmm. All of all of those things are as important. All the, the the editing and the sound and all that stuff is as important as you find in an action movie. And cause, because I think they realize that all of the action in this movie is mostly people talking. And if you do that wrong, it's going to be the most boring thing on the planet. But you get sparkling dialogue from Sorkin, and then you get the sizzling editing and the, the, the soundtrack, and you put them all together, then suddenly act, words become actions. And it's as exciting to watch as a gunfight or a car chase. Right. 
Absolutely. And and I think that that's a good transition into you talked before about why why it was difficult for the academy. Well, let's just let me just tell quickly the the story of the social network which which continues to this day to be the one film that polarized the critics and the industry more than any other film um, that I that in recent history since the critics groups began to form. Uh, and the industry, because you know the the producers guild, the screen actors guild, they haven't been around that long. The directors guild has been around, yeah, like sixty, seventy years, but the other two guilds haven't been. So you can't really factor them in into the long term history that you have with the DGA. The New York film critics have been around since the '30s. The Los Angeles film critics have been around since the '60s, I think, or the '70s, something like that. Um, the Golden Globes have been around since the 30s. So all of those have been around for a long time. But but all the new critics groups, and there are like dozens of them, they're all relatively recent. They've formed recently. Um, and the guilds have formed recently. And a lot of the guild awards came late, right? Nonetheless, you still had the Social Network winning more critics awards than any film in history. That includes... If you divide them up between old awards and new awards, it still wins the most. It is It holds the record for the film to win that many awards and not win the Oscar. Any other film that has won that many has won the Oscar. Um, after it won the Golden Globe, uh, it things shifted dramatically. The Producers Guild gave it to the King's Speech. Screen Actors Guild gave it to the King's Speech. Directors Guild gave it to the King's Speech. And the Oscars gave it to the King's Speech. It was a complete division between critics and Golden Globe, whatever you want to think of them as, whatever they are, Hollywood Foreign Press, and industry. And the industry went the big consensus votes, which is the DGA has 14,000, the Producers Guild has 4,000, uh, SAG has 100,000, and the Academy has roughly 6,000. And they, the big votes all went for the King's Speech. They didn't go for the social network. Um, so part of that had to do with the fact that the King's Speech was being campaigned behind the scenes in ways that bloggers and critics really had no idea was happening. For instance, Ariana Huffington had a party for the King's Speech with, with actors and, you know, Colin Firth and really big, big name actors showing up. All these SAG voters are invited to that to that party. Uh, these guys are really likable. So on the one hand, you had this kind of backdoor campaigning going on, but you also had a movie that was a lot more emotionally accessible than the social network. And in fact, um, a lot of people on the street that you talk to, if you ask them which movie did you like better, a lot of them will say The King's Speech because they related to it. It made them feel they loved the guy. They were rooting for Colin Firth the whole time. They loved the relationship between Joffrey Rush and uh, uh, Colin Firth. It was a movie that touched a lot of people. It isn't really its fault that it had to go up against one of the greatest films of all time, in my opinion. It hasn't made sight and sounds list yet, but it will eventually. Um, so another thing too, I think about. Go ahead. I don't mean to. If you no, I'm, I'm just saying that that was basically the story, and I've never actually seen anything like it. And I have to admit, I lost my mind with the Social Network and the King's Speech, because back then it really seemed like it mattered to me what movie won Best Picture. I really thought at that time that the best movie should win. I've since, in 15 years of Oscar history, learned that it isn't about 
the best movie winning. It's about um, that movie at the moment that people all can agree on. And we had also been spoiled by by The Hurt Locker and by right. No Country for Old Men. We were thinking that maybe the Academy had finally undergone some sort of sea change and they were going to start awarding the best, the actual best, um, most outstanding film every year. And they then they surprised us and went back to their old ways of doing the most, the easiest and most sentimental in the movie that that um, makes you cry, you know. The movie that makes you feel. They went back to that. And it has I a absolutely, ending. yeah, it has a happy ending. I absolutely agree with you that there was a campaign going on for the King's Speech that very few people outside the industry were aware of. The kind of thing that goes on in Palm Springs and in Santa Barbara, where they have the the panel discussions, and you have someone like Tom Hooper and the screenwriter for the King's Speech, who are excellent raconteurs. They can they can get up on. They can really. Um, entertain an audience of, of academy of actual voters in a way that 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 Fincher and Sorkin uh, are, were not willing to do or that they didn't do for whatever reason. And I do think too that what Craig, what you said is really about the, the fact that the the screenplay is the type. It's a really smart, sharp, rat-a-tat-tat, rapid-fire screenplay. And those kinds of screenplays have won before in the past, where they've been respected and admired in the past. I'm thinking back in the days of the screwball comedies, something like my His Girl Friday or something had that kind of screenplay. But it was all, those characters were likable. Those characters were lovable. And that's something you hear these these really rapid fire um, um, remarks coming out of, of of the mouths of characters who you're not really that crazy about as far as their likability, and it makes them sound smart alecky and smarmy instead of yeah. smart. Right. Yeah, that's a good point it's about the social network because I think that's another key draw against it. Is that even even as a person who loves the movie, I find ninety nine percent of the characters in it to be revolting and I would not want to spend time in a room with them in real life. The only real character that I like is Rooney Mara's character, Eric Albright, at the very beginning and at some point in the middle. Everybody mm-hmm. else, um, both the, both their personifications in the film and what I think I know of them, those characters in real life, I, I tend to not be able to stand. And so but that, how genius. that makes it hard. How genius to, to make her the centerpiece of the first uh, scene in the film and had to have her to have to have her be the heart of the film, the heart that 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 Mark Zuckerberg is, Mark Zuckerberg is chasing throughout the film, and to have the film end on that note too, so that her, even though she's only in the movie, you know, in the very first scene, and then her, hardly ever after that, she she is the heart and soul of the movie, in a way that none of the other characters are really are. Well, right, she, and she, she... she's the audience introduction to that world too, mm-hmm. and I think she's also a clue that that Sorkin and Fincher probably agree that those these characters aren't particularly likable either. Their, oh, right. their yeah. sympathies definitely rest on her side of the equation. But and that, go ahead. That's that's so smart because you know I think that they they absolutely understood that Fincher's not known for making warm cuddly movies. He's always made movies with really dark characters, and Sorkin too has a really dark outlook on life. I think then it came comes through in this screenplay more than any of his others. We have a uh, one of our readers, Al Robinson. I think he said something really smart, savvy on Twitter the other day. He said that he watched Social Network again recently, and he realized that it's the anti-Facebook movie or the un-Facebook movie. And even though in September, October, when when the Social Network first came out, it was automatically tagged with that description as the Facebook movie in the same sort of derogatory way that you might say the Lego movie, you know, because people thought, how can you make a movie about Facebook? But what they were doing was making the movie that was critical of Facebook. 
it was critical of the whole concept and the whole the whole um, the, the social phenomenon of Facebook. It was it was it was anti Facebook in a way. The reason is 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 uh, as brilliant as it is. Um, what you're looking at is an absolute beautiful metaphor for for social networking. An absolutely mm-hmm. perfect prophetic view of the future which is a guy without friends makes a friend network a guy with only one friend andrew garfield that he screws over creates an entire network where everybody gets to be fake friends and it's a way to show that 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 friendship in the future is not going to be real it's not going to be um you know human interaction it's going to be this kind of you know designed controlled um, you know, cut off kind of human interaction, which is what we all experience on Facebook. I mean, to me, it was a beautiful metaphor for how things were going. Um, totally pioneering um, thought back in 2010, which is is re- totally realized today. But most of us have just long since accepted Facebook as part of our lives, mm-hmm. and it is defining friendships and it is defining history of each individual American and actually like globally. Right? Facebook is a big deal. But what I love about, just to circle back to Rooney Mara, one thing I love about the social network is it starts with Rooney Mara saying to Mark Zuckerberg, um, you know, I, I want you to know that, that you know, you're going to think that women don't like you because you're, you're a, a nerd. Well, that's not the case. It'll be because you're an asshole. And then at the end, he's told um, by another woman, uh, she says, you're not an asshole, Mark. You're just trying so hard to be. And that's how it ends. And then he's like on Facebook trying to get Erica Albright to accept his friend request. And that's the great thing is like Erica Albright for all of her criticism, for all of her, it's a video game, for all of her, you know, rejection of Mark Zuckerberg is on Facebook. Like, mm-hmm. does that just say it all or what? Like, she's on Facebook. Right, and because he's it's getting... not, they're also saying that it's not as if Facebook in itself is intrinsically bad or evil or, or, or a bane on society, but more specifically trying to profit from that is what can really be someone's downfall trying to turn that into a capitalistic thing where you profit from from other people's desire to have a friendship is actually going to to destroy you well like i look at it two different ways i look at the real facebook which is what you're saying right there about profit Mm -hmm. but i look at the movies version of facebook which is very specific because it's a movie about a guy who has no friends who creates a friend network. It's about a movie about a guy who's awkward with women who creates a way to, um, you know, stalk women and, and find out who they're dating and hit on them. Like he creates, because he's such a genius, he creates this, this little world that he can control, you know? Mm-hmm. And to me that the movie makes it very clear, um, who, who the movie Mark Zuckerberg is, who isn't the real Mark Zuckerberg. They're very different. Um, the real story of Facebook is, is slightly different from the Sorkin um, Fincher version, which is the same as Citizen Kane is not the William Randolph Hearst story. It's about Kane, and Kane is about America. Social Network is a, not about Zuckerberg. It's about America. It's about the way our culture has evolved. Well, not just America, actually, globally. The way our mm-hmm. culture has evolved to how we talk to each other now and how we get our news and what our daily experience is, it's f- through, a lot of it is through Facebook. And that's a different than than what Mark Zuckerberg is and what he does now. Um, I just, Everyone, I think, had an online 
and I had some sort of online life before Twitter and Facebook, but now there's an online life that people can have where they really can feel like that it can replicate and duplicate and substitute for having a real life. Yeah, I mean, the the beauty of um, social network is also that it, while it's, it's indicting these guys for being superficial assholes, which it does, it also celebrates their genius. Like, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when the kid comes up and asks him, you know, do you know Stephanie Addis? Do you know if she's seeing anybody? And he says, people don't walk around with, with labels that say, I'm in a... And he stops, and he's like... And the music starts playing, and he's like, oh, my God. And he runs down the stairs, and he runs to start coding, and he types in relationship status. And it's so right. funny, mm-hmm. because at the time, not everybody was using Facebook. Like, Facebook really came to prominence, like, 2006, when the Virginia Tech shootings happened, people were talking about Facebook because it was a college thing. It just started to grow and grow and grow. And by 2010, when Social Network came out, people thought of Facebook. Like, they just didn't get... I don't think the Academy members and the industry voters quite got it, how important that story is to American history. I just don't think they got it. Um, but, But when he goes, relationship status, and he's ready to launch the site... And you hear all throughout the movie the stuff he's talking about that is Facebook, like tagging photos, like the wall, all this stuff that is so much a part. It's so seeped into our culture now, our reality, our daily reality. And to have invented that from scratch, like you said, let's reiterate the genius behind that, to to be able to make that leap to create something like that that didn't exist, that people had not even had any conception before that anyone else would be interested in, And 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 to make someone addicted to something that they didn't even know they wanted. He changed the way people talk to each other. He changed the way people relate to each other. I wouldn't know where a lot of these kids that I grew up with would end it up. I would have no idea where they would have ended up. But there, there they are on Facebook, writing me, liking my posts, talking to me, showing me pictures of their kid. Like, you never really say goodbye to people now because they're alive on Facebook. And, and anybody that you know that isn't on Facebook, not you, Ryan, because we talk to you every day, but hmm. a lot of the friends from my past, if they're not on Facebook, yeah, we don't have that same connection. We don't have that interaction. But anybody who is on that, it's like we're all in this kind of weird present day where there is no past. There isn't, you know, there is no future. There is just right now where we're all talking to each other all the time. You don't leave people behind. Mm-hmm. Like my daughter, when she meets people and people she's gone to elementary school with, middle school with, and now high school, they're all her Facebook friends. And she's staying in touch with them all throughout her life, who knows when, you know, until she... I want to just say that you you all are lucky that there are people from your grade school and high school that you want to stay in touch with. The reason that I'm not in face, on Facebook is because there aren't a lot of people from my past that I care anything about, you know, keeping up with them. But that's my particular situation, that I that I didn't like anybody in high school, so why should I want to be liking them now? Right, no, I... <laughs> you know? so- and vice versa, I mean, I wasn't the most likable guy myself in high school. I didn't have a whole lot of friends in high school. Well, that's the interesting contradiction about the Zuckerberg movie character. Not, I, I'm not speaking about the real person because I don't know him. I've never met him or talked to him. But the movie character is kind of a contradiction. He's probably, like Ryan, he probably didn't have a lot of interest in the people he grew up with or even the people he was currently going to college with. Yet he still had, despite that antisocialness, he still had a, has a 
a, a really sharp understanding of human nature and what makes humans tick and, and why they do the things that they, they do. And he keyed in on that in the creation of this thing that we are also so drawn to, the, the relationship status thing, but also the exclusivity thing of Facebook, the mm. fact that you get to decide who's in your social circle makes it feel special, and that's what people like. Right, absolutely. Um, and it, it is ironic, of course, the height of irony that this movie about a guy creating a friend network then screws over his only friend. <laughs> and the way that the film intercuts those two lawsuits is so brilliant. I mean, I watch it and I think, how did he do that? But he has the Edward Saverin lawsuit going on, and then he's got the, the Winklevi lawsuit, and they're interwoven. And if you keep watching it, you'll hear these lines, and you'll think, oh, which trial am I in? I'm in this trial. Oh, wait, I'm switching back to that trial. And they weave it in with history and past in such a beautiful way. Like, it's it's just elegant, elegantly put together. Um, I'm thinking about that last scene in particular when she says, how much, how, how, how much were their shares diluted down? How much was... Mark Zuckerberg's shares diluted down. It wasn't. How much was Sean Parker's shares diluted down? It wasn't. How much were your shares diluted down? He's like zero point something, like one nine percent. And then you hear the music, dang dang. And then <laughs> it cuts immediately to Mark Zuckerberg saying to to uh, Saverin, "You signed the papers. You made the deal." And he's like, you know, yelling at him. Like right after that scene in the courtroom, it takes you right back to their big fight in the climax, and he has that great line: "You better lawyer up, asshole, because I'm not coming back for for ten percent or whatever he says. I'm coming back for everything." And then he courtroom out. dramas are difficult enough when there's like a murder or something going on, but when you have a courtroom drama that's about corporate law, you would think that that would be the a death knell that it would just no that it couldn't be interesting at all, or that you would not even it would it would be so hard to explain what was going on legally that people so many people wouldn't even be able to follow it. But like you said, you're never in any doubt of exactly what's at stake, what's at stake. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't try to... What I think I love about the movie is he doesn't try to make Mark Zuckerberg likable. He doesn't. He's not mm. worried about that. That's not the story he's trying to tell. He's mm. trying to talk about our culture and where it's headed and what what we're, you know, what direction we're choosing and why. And it's, it's beautiful. Uh, it is absolutely 100% an American story, just like Citizen Kane is 100% an American story. And you had a lot of these incredibly pivotal films in 2010. You had Black Swan, um, The Fighter, uh, The Kids Are All Right, True Grit, Winter's Bone. These are all made by American filmmakers, incredibly talented films on the cutting edge. Kids Are All Right was a pioneering film about uh, gay parenting that made Best Picture directed by a woman. Um, mm -hmm. Winter's Bone launched Jennifer Lawrence. Black Swan was an incredible, bizarre Aaron, uh, Darren Aronofsky movie. And the Academy chose to go all the way back to the 1930s, independent British filmmakers, um, a British story about the British monarchy and give that best picture. I'm sorry, but I, I, I'm not going to dump on the King's speech. I know it was about the British Film Council saving the Film Council. I know it was about the backstage deals, and I know it was about the producers. The movie cost so little, and it made so much. What like cost forty million or something? It made 150 million. I, I can't imagine that it would cost half of 40 million. It probably cost more like 20. I would something guess something like that. Yeah, 15 million maybe <laughs> even, and it made mm -hmm. 150 something insane or 100 million or something. It was 
was insane mm -hmm. hit. It was it was a big deal. It had all the things that a best picture needs, except for the fact that it was nowhere near the best picture. At best, it was a masterpiece theater. PBS. Yeah, I don't. I mean, to hear me talk about the King's Speech, as anybody who knows me from the site or has listened to me on the podcast before knows, I don't think really highly of it. But it still would be in my top twenty, which is which is not bad considering I'm choosing from a hundred and or two hundred different films to be in the top twenty. Is still pretty good, but no way would it be in my top ten or top five. And or in the top one is ridiculous to me. The number one thing. And like Sasha was saying, that's that, that's the hard hard pill for me to swallow is that even if you even if you take out the social network from the equation and honestly back in 2010 I was ready to do that it was not in my top 10 movies of the year at that time but having said that there's still just among the nominees there's still eight other pictures on the nominee list that are much better to me than the king's speech and that's that will, will that was what was so galling about it at the time it's not a terrible movie it's a very likable decent movie but it's faced up against so much greatness that it's really hard to swallow that it, it feels like they just they they looked at this amazing list and couldn't decide between the good ones and so they picked the easiest one this is how it feels. Yeah, and I know that the British Film Council fight had a lot to do with it. Um, that explains why the industry went for it whole hog the way that they did. But what is ironic about that to me is that the Americans weren't thinking, let's reward our own. Let's try to reward the cutting edge uh, American filmmakers who are doing this, you know, this visionary work as opposed to a British film, which is okay, fine, it's good and everything. Yes, it made a lot of money. Yes, it's going to save the British Council. I don't know if it ended up doing it or not, but the British Film Council. But it's there's nothing groundbreaking about that film. Nothing. It could have been made in the 1940s, it could have been made in the 50s and 60s and 70s. You know, yes, it's a good movie. No way, I'm sorry, is it not the best picture of the year. I don't think that you could get anybody to make that argument with a straight face. Um, they, they thought they were doing a good thing. People like to do good things with their votes. It makes sense that the consensus um, felt sorry for Colin Firth as King George, and they wanted to reward this poor stuttering guy. You know, I get that about people. They're compassionate. They're nice. They throw their votes behind something they feel counts. Um, this year, they had the information heading into the race. The critics said 100% across the board, the social network is the best film of the year. What happened after that, I think, is I can forgive the Academy and the industry. I, okay, I... I I can understand why the acting branch picked the King's Speech. I can understand why the producer's branch kicked it. I cannot understand how the director's branch picked Tom Hooper over David Fincher. You know, yes, we were not living in the Argo, post-Argo landscape of it's okay to split picture and director because back then they didn't split them. You never really saw splits uh, like you see now after, after the whole Argo thing. Um, but Nonetheless, it's still a really hard pill for me to swallow that the directors would pick Tom Hooper's film. Can I just say, though, we want to be careful to distinguish the director's branch of the Academy from the director's guild. I think the director's branch of the Academy are 400 of the top directors in, in the world. But I think that the director's guild are 10,000 of all kinds of directors from yeah. television and everything else. Right. So I'm not going to blame the director's branch of the Academy necessarily for 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 Tom Hooper winning. But I do think that Directors Guild is diluted by a lot of directors who direct uh, 
things on Nickelodeon and who or wherever, you know. And they direct all the crappy television. Any if you have any any television series, you, if you direct any episode, you're on the, in the director's guild, right? So it's not the same group of people. I know, but still. Mm-hmm. But still, I still Yeah, I agree with them. you. You think a director would would recognize the accomplishment of David Fincher no matter what level of director they are. I'll be right back. Erica? Yeah, hi. I saw you from over there. I didn't know you came to this club a lot. First time. Mine too. Can I talk to you alone for a second? I think I'm good right here. I just... I'd love to talk to you alone. If we could just go someplace. Right here is fine. I don't know if you heard about this new website I launched. No. The Facebook. You called me a bitch on the internet, Mark. That's why I wanted to talk to you. If we on could just... the internet. That's why I came over. Comparing women to farm animals. I didn't end up doing that. It didn't stop you from writing it. As if every thought that tumbles through your head was so clever it would be a crime for it not to be shared. The internet's not written in pencil, Mark. It's written in ink. And you published that Erica Albright was a bitch right before you made some ignorant crack about my family's name, my bra size, and then rated women based on their hotness. Erica, is there a problem? No, there's no problem. You write your snide bullshit from a dark room because that's what the angry do nowadays. I was nice to you. Don't torture me for it. If we could just go somewhere for a minute. I don't want to be rude to my friends. Good luck with your video game. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I don't see why it has to just be up to the film critics. On the other hand, mm-hmm. even worse than the Directors Guild picking Social Network, I mean, picking King's Speech, even worse than that, and this is the really hard part to get over, is how the critics after that year, the bloggers, especially the Oscar bloggers, mm-hmm. um, started, you know, started acting weird about the fact that the movie that they backed 100% didn't win. And and the from then on, they were less inclined to align themselves behind one movie, and in so doing, like you see these weird things happening, like you saw last year with Twelve Years a Slave, where they didn't want to align behind that one movie. They wanted to split it up just to split it up, just because after the Social Network, they were left kind of holding the bag. It was like the industry completely rejected their choice, a hundred percent rejected it. Um, the Academy actually rewarded Social Network better than the industry did overall. It gave they gave it three Oscars. Although as far as the guilds go, comparing yeah, guilds to well, the Academy Award categories. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I you know, it's hard to work in an industry where the movie that that people pick is just the movie that people feel so emotional about. Like it was, it was better when it was No Country for Old Men, The Departed, The Hurt Locker. Those days were kind of better to live through than the, you know, we just like the sappy movie that makes us cry, you know. Um, that's, but, but the critics, you know, they acted kind of embarrassed about it, and you saw a lot of Oscar bloggers saying, like, oh, I knew it was going to be the King's speech, or somehow making it out like it would have been better to think that it was the King's speech all along than to think that David Fincher and the social network was going to win. Like, to me, that's so cowardly. It's like, why would you want to align yourself with that kind of mediocre thinking? Like, okay, fine, the King's Speech won. That doesn't mean you have to, like, retroactively punish the social network because the Academy didn't pick it, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. to me, that's just cowardly. 
It's sad to me that people would rather be on the right side of the academy than the right side of artistic history. That's disgusting. Yeah, and I see it again and again. People keep bringing it up. And I, I was on an Oscar panel last year, I think it was, so we were talking about that. And and uh, I was the only one that said, can we just say that you know the King's Speech shouldn't have won? Because everybody on the panel was talking about you know, how wrong people were to think that the social network was going to win and how wrong they were to think David Fincher was going to win and how right they were to think it was the King's Speech the whole time. And as if the only thing that mattered was them being right. Like, honestly, if I just thought that, that the only thing that mattered was me being right, I would quit and work in public school. You know, like yeah, although you do, you do a really fine job, Sasha, every year of balancing and making clear to the readers, and especially on the site and in the podcast now, too, of d- distinguishing between what you think is the most deserving best picture and also being realistic about what the best picture, what is actually going to win best picture. Because I know that I was never ready to give up on David Fincher and the social network all throughout February. But as soon as as uh, as uh, Tom Hooper won the DGA award on like January 29th, you said immediately that very night, well, that's it. That's o- it's no, over. no, I actually, you, Ryan, I said it before that. I was actually one of the few people to come out and say, Hooper is winning the DGA. Remember that night? Uh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. You did. I forgot about that. Yeah. I did the and math. I, I, didn't, I didn't even want to listen to that. I didn't want to believe it. I know. It, I'm sorry. Right. Nobody wanted to hear that. Nobody. Like even Ann Thompson and you know Chris Tapley claims that he that he also thought that, but I I don't know that that was true or not. But I did the math and I figured out that a film with 12 nominations heading into the Oscar race that's going to win Best Picture is also going to win Best Director, and if it's going to win Best Director, it's going to win the DGA. Like mm-hmm. it's so rare for it to a different director to win the DGA and then. That's it, why anyone doing their Oscar pool in January and February should always listen to you, Sasha, and they should never listen to me because I never give up on my first, my first, the first movie that I fall in love with. I'm never going to give up with it on it until Oscar night, and even <laughs> the, even then I, I don't want to give up on it. So well, people just don't listen to me all I, throughout I don't think February should, because I'm unreliable. I don't think they should listen to me either, honestly, because I. <laughs> By this point, I've after the social network, it just it broke my heart so bad that I stopped really caring about being right and all. But you were, but just because of that, you were realistic about it. You realistically told told us on on the night of the DJ, even before the DJ award was handed out, and then afterwards, all through February, that we could just it was it was all over with. You yeah, know, but I was forget hope, about social I, I was network. really hoping, secretly hoping that I would somehow shift the tide. Like the dialogue would somehow people would go, "Oh no way! It can't be that that." Tom Hooper and the King's Speech are going to win. We have to vote for the social network, but... And we, it's, and we can never know really how close it was, it's because we know, for instance, that Life of Pi and and Gravity were really uh, not like... Uh, that Gravity and... What am I talking about? <laughs> Gra- yeah. What was last year? What, a gra- a gravity and 12 Years a Slave. That we They were really, really close last year, so close that they tied in the PGA. So we will never really know how close the vote was for the PGA and DGA. I think it's not as the, if the King's Speech probably ran away with it. I don't think that. I don't either, but I think the, the I would like to say that the actors made the difference. But whenever I do that, I think of Tom Hooper winning Best Director, and I think that they couldn't have just been the actors. Like it was all. But the thing is, is that uh, back then they didn't believe in splitting. I think if if these two films were coming down the pike today, you might see a split. You might see King's Speech and David Fincher. But back yeah, then, splits what... were so rare. Now they're not considered rare anymore after Ben Affleck. Like he, he kind of broke that 
really literally did because we, saw we've never seen a split happen so frequently since the Affleck thing. It's a, right. suddenly it seems like it's a it's the norm instead of the exception. It's right. happened a lot of times in the past, but it was always the exception to the rule. Now it seems like the new rule. It does, it. doesn't it? Like it seems yeah. like people think of them as really, really, literally two separate awards. But back then in 2010, they didn't. They thought of them it's, as. I know that's hard for you to accept, but I'm almost willing to make say, okay, I can go along with that because at least that way, because I think that the best director award is equally as prestigious as Best Picture. And so if it's going to have to be that Best Picture goes to the movie that makes you feel, I'm happy that the Best Director can go to the movie that makes us think. Yeah, yeah, right, right. It, not that that was the case with Gravity and 12 Years a Slave. I know, really. That's kind of like, again, that's, that's, it totally Sorry, goes against what I just said. No, I know, it's true. None of these things make sense. But but what you're seeing now is with Ang Lee and Life of Pi and Gravity and Alfonso Cuaron, you're really right. seeing mm -hmm. the director nod um, now being appropriated to these grand visual effects films that, that the old-time Hollywood can't really roll with yet. And I know? think, too, what I said before about... Uh, I'm mentioning talking about Life of Pi. I think it's easy to sum up and trivialize a movie like Life of Pi, as so many people did, as calling it the a movie about the kid that finds God in a boat, and that's it. And once you once you trivialize it like that and diminish it, the same way that you can diminish the Social Network by saying it's the Facebook movie. I do think that sometimes a movie can get tagged early on with a label that diminishes it, and then people can't get past the idea that it's a it's a it's a trivial thing that's not doesn't have the importance as if as if a king stuttering is so important <laughs> to me i mean that's my attitude about that talking about the fact that the citizen kane was not was different from the real life William Randolph Hearst, and of course, the Mark Zuckerberg in the movie is different from the real Mark Zuckerberg. Well, King George, the real life King George, was much different from the one that we see in the movie. His stutter is not nearly as bad as my stutter. Oh, if I you know. look, you can easily find on YouTube actual speeches that King George gave, and he you can barely detect that he stutters at all. I so know. They, that was so exaggerated for the movie and made him look really pathetic and pitiful when he. I don't think he really was in real life. I don't think he was either, but I will say this. Um, I will say this about the King's speech that I absolutely thought Colin Firth did an amazing job within the co within the co constraints of that hmm. exaggerated performance. He was yeah. incredible. He did give his best performance, other than The Single Man, which is his best performance. This was his second best performance. Um, Lock me in the tower. I would, if I could. On what charge? Fraud. With war looming, you've saddled this nation with a voiceless king. You've destroyed the happiness of my family, all for the sake of ensnaring a starved patient you couldn't possibly hope to assist. It'll be like mad King George III. Probably mad King... George the Stammerer, who let his people down so badly in their hour of need. What are you doing? Get up. You can't sit there. Get up. Why not? It's a chair. No, it, that is not a chair. That is, that is, that is St. Edward's chair. People have that carved their names on it. chair is the seat on which every king it's held and in queen... It's by a large rock. That is the stone of Schoon. You are, are trivializing oh, you everything. You trivialize... I don't care how many royal assholes have Listen to me! Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? By divine right, if you must. I am your king. No, you're not. You told me so yourself. You said you didn't want it. Why should I waste my time listening to because you? Because I have a right to be... Oh, and I have a voice! 
else you do. You have such perseverance, Bertie. You're the bravest man I know. You make a bloody good king. He's brilliant in the part and, and incredibly sweet. And the, the relationship between him and Joffrey Rush is exceptional. And I think mm -hmm. that the two of them should have been gotten all the acting accolades uh, that they deserved. I do not think by any stretch it deserved to win Best Picture. I will never think that. I'll never understand it. It will always piss me off. But the thing about it that will... I'm sorry, sorry, listeners. I told you I wasn't going to lose my temper. Here I go. <laughs> but the thing that will piss me off even more is dumb bloggers and critics punishing the social network for them quote unquote getting it wrong nothing will ever piss me off more they didn't get it wrong it was a year that had two best pictures and that's what i said at the end of 2010 after i had a nervous breakdown hmm. that there were two best picture winners and i believe that there were the industry said the king's speech and they made the wrong choice and the critics said the social network and they made the right choice and it was divided a hundred percent down the middle split the king's speech won hardly any best picture among the critics awards, King's Speech, I think, only won the Chicago Film Critics and nothing else. Nothing yeah. else major at all. No, they went whole yeah. hog for the social network. Yeah. Yeah. It, it um, did fine, though, among individual critics. It didn't do the social hmm. network level, which had a 95 Metacritic and 28 out of 42 100s. It still had an 88 Metacritic with 16 out of 41 100. Yeah. So it's right. a definite step down, but it's not ex It's not like it's. Uh, it was a... Uh, uh, it's not like the critics took a crap on it. Or it's not like That's Crash. Yeah. It's no mm. Crash. It's not as embarrassing as Crash. Um, mm. The other problem that the social network had in terms of Oscar, other than it was a done deal. If it wins the PGA, the DGA, and the SAG, forget it. It's going to win. So right. Forget it. You can't even talk about Academy or anything if, if it wins those big guilds. But nonetheless... Um, the uh, oh, and unless we forget the screenwriter, remember his story. Um, the uh, yeah. the the one thing about the social network that it had going into the Oscars, if you want it, like if you want to entertain any other notion than the King's Speech winning, which it was a done deal, but if you weren't going to vote for the King's Speech, you had a lot of choices. It didn't mean that you were going to pool around the social network. You might have been an Inception fan. Uh, a lot of people love the Fighter. A lot of people loved Black Swan, and a lot of people loved True Grit. Um, so it wasn't like it was between two movies. It was it was really split up, the love that year, because there were so many good movies. Um, mm -hmm. I wonder sometimes if, if the fact that there were so many good movies did dilute some of some of... Some of the people who vote for quality and not with their hearts. Absolutely, I think if there were five, Social Network would have won. Not only that, but what what you're uh, further to what you were saying, uh, the Social Network and and Inception and Black Swan and, and even True Grit have an intellectual component to them that 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 the King's Speech doesn't have. So if you're going to vote for the sentimental movie, you really only did have one choice. But if you wanted to vote for the for the um, movie that had a, a intellectual director's florist type movie. You had several to choose from, several options. So really, there's only one traditional Oscar movie. I know and that was the King's Speech. Yeah, and I know. So exactly. Thank you for giving me the lead into what I'm about to say. And I'm sorry to sound so bitter, but. You guys know that I'm patriotic when it comes to Americans and the Oscar race. I get a lot of shit from this from readers. And the only reason that I feel this way is that I, f I feel that the Oscars were designed for um, 
the American film industry, and I do feel like we're kind of fighting for our lives right now because we're about to be swallowed up by tentpole um, sequels and comic book crap. So I, I do love it that this year, 2010, four brilliant Americans, arguably the best American directors that, that film now knows, which is and doing fucking amazing work. David O. Russell, David Fincher, Joel and Ethan Cohen, Darren Aronofsky, four, against Tom Hooper, who wins mm. Tom Hooper. Like, I don't know how you can look at that and not feel like you're eating a shit sandwich, honestly. I don't right. know. Like, to me, it's like, really? You have mm. these great American directors, American directors, up against the one British guy, and the British guy wins? Like, to me, that's just astounding that the... Uh, and American- it's not as if that we're, we, we have a lot of international listeners, so we don't want to just think that we're so rah, rah, rah American that we can only see American directors as being worthy. Because, but it's, there's a difference between Tom Hooper winning and Alfonso Cuaron winning or, or Steve McQueen winning. Or that's a, there's Lee a totally winning. different level of quality there. What about Ang Lee? Tom- Ang Lee is a great example of someone yes, who deserves exactly. an yeah. international director who deserves an Oscar. And I'm not going to argue... Um, uh, yeah, I can't argue with Ang Lee winning. But of all the international directors to choose, to choose a director like Tom Hooper, who is, is uh, uh, well, I'm no, I don't want to try to resist saying we're not, we're not bashing, insulting we're not things bashing. about Tom Hooper. Uh, all I'm going to say is, of all those films, The Fighter, The Social Network, True Grit, Black Swan, The King's Speech, only one of them is, is absolutely not um, inventive, groundbreaking, cinema and that's Mm -hmm. the king's speech and yes actors rule the academy they don't rule the dga they don't rule the pga everything about the king's speech winning had to do with a combination of a very emotional film that made a lot of money and the british film council which was going under and this like weird cause to save it um those things combined is really what's and it was a brilliant Strategy by the Weinstein Co. to get that out there, to get that um, fight to save the British Film Council, which had produced all these great movies and was going under, and the King's Speech was like their last hope. That was brilliant mm. because it gave people an incentive and a reason. And so you had, on the one hand, saving the British Film Council, the nicest guy in the world, Colin Firth, with the other nicest guy in the world, Joffrey Rush doing the campaigning you had harvey weinstein who had friends in high places and you had tom hooper who at the time was known as a nice guy he has since been gossiped about as an asshole which i have not had personal experience with but that's what everybody says um but at the time he was thought of as a nice guy up against asshole aaron sorkin asshole david fincher asshole mark zuckerberg a movie about assholes it's like it doesn't it's a kind of a no-brainer to think what is the consensus going to vote for they're going to vote for the right. nice guy because tom hooper was relatively unknown compared to those other directors even though he had a good reputation as having being a very likable guy that whatever gloss of personality he had in 2010 is certainly worn off by the time les miserables came along right and i want to say of course david fincher is not an asshole he's one of the nicest people i've ever met but at the time he was being cast that way, like they were yeah. casting it's, them as mean guy versus nice guy. Like that was the strategy. Cold Plus guy he's versus a guy who is confident enough in himself that he's not going to waste a lot of time sucking up to the Oscars the way Tom Hooper did. He didn't suck up at all. No, he didn't. And that was one of the, the things was he was not 
he's not a guy who kisses babies. That's not David Fincher. He's not going to do that. He's not going to play that game to win. And honestly, he's joining a much more elite group of the greatest directors of all time who never won Oscars. Right? I mean, it was mm-hmm. going to be definitely. Up there. Yeah. Well, would you rather be in the? That. And would you rather be in the pile with Hitchcock? And Kubrick and Orson Welles, or would you rather be in the pile with David Avildsen and hmm. Tom Hooper? It's like, right. okay. I mean, I'm not totally dissing. I, I'm sorry, I shouldn't even be talking about this. I really should not have. We should. Well, we always say we're not year. going to, but it's so tempting. How can we resist? Because it's, it's really we feel so strongly about it. It'd be it would be artificial if we didn't say these things because we'd be covering up our true feelings. And our anyway, our readers and listeners know how we feel. It would be we can't fake the fact that we have. A lot of disregard for for Tom right. Hooper and the King's Speech, well, so the, even though it's still, like I said, it would be in my t- among my top twenty favorite films of the year. It's nowhere near number one, though. It's not in my top twenty. The performances are, but not the film. Although I might have put it in there. I don't know. Um, I, back to the performances, though, just briefly. I mean, you're so right about Colin Firth because that's a really difficult thing to carry off. To 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 do a stutter like that and to do it convincingly is hard enough. But then to do it sympathetically and not make it a uh, not make the the audience laugh at it, but to make you feel the pain that he's going through, the agony, yeah. the anxiety that he's feeling really comes across really, really well. And that's so hard to do, I imagine. Right, right, absolutely. And he did it so beautifully. He's such a good actor. I mean, really. He did a good job of taking uh, a character who has every advantage in life being royalty and the king of England and making him, making him vulnerable and and making you feel empathy for him right yeah there you go. Uh, yeah and, and they were just they they were a could not a could not lose team so the residual from the social network is as i said the critics being weird about their choice and not wanting to align behind one thing because they all felt embarrassed for some reason about that which i don't think they should have been but they felt that way um and the fallout is also that uh it's kind of set the bar for sappy movies to continue to win the Oscar. Um, I think it's always, maybe it's always been that way. Maybe we lose, maybe we all, it's so easy for us to forget it. But I think like every, every 10 years, there are two really great intellectual type movies, but most of the other eight of the 10 movies every decade are usually pretty sappy. And it's been that way for a long, long time. When we have a run of movies like, the Hurt Locker and No Country for Old Men, and we get we get we have we get our hopes up. But those hopes we shouldn't get our hopes up because we have to remember who we're dealing with. It's the Academy, and and also we know we've heard so many actors on on talk shows say that they don't have email or they don't they're not on Facebook or whatever. And I think a lot of especially the older actors had no idea what Facebook was even about, much less that it would have any sort of really. <laughs> cultural significance well, that, that they should yeah that was one of the big problems was that a lot of those older users didn't even use facebook and that they didn't realize what that. they were seeing yeah and i remember that it being at the time people going a movie about facebook why would why should i care about that but two years ago when they about when they were the first time they went with online ballots they had to have people go around to the academy members homes to walk them through how to vote online oh trust me i know i've been to academy screenings i know how old they are i'm not saying that as a bad <laughs> thing good for them they've lived this long but it is is always important to remember when you're covering the Oscars exactly what you're covering. However, I also would like to remind people that we're not talking about just the Oscars. We're talking about the entire industry. We're talking about the PGA, the DGA, SAG. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is right. So that's harder to understand because you, the, those people we know have a lot of young blood. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's easy to blame the, the old-timers in the academy, but that yeah. would be the case if they voted against what the industry said and they didn't. That that was the case with the with Brokeback Mountain and Crash, maybe. Mm-hmm. But it, that's, it wasn't the case with the King's Speech. They were really, I think, thinking they were fighting the... The film council and and they were helping the poor stuttering king. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you and know, another... the heart wants what it wants. Like that's ultimately the lesson when you're talking about voting. Uh, you're talking about people who don't vote. They're not voting quality. They are absolutely voting what makes what they're responding to on an emotional level. Whether it's giving the first woman the Oscar, giving the first black film directed by a black uh, director the Oscar, like. Or saving the British Film Council. Like, there has to be that extra thing that makes them want to vote for something that they, they want to see win. It's all about who they want to see win. You know, I just don't think that they ever wanted to see Aaron's, um, David Fincher win. I think they wanted to see him lose. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Another thing that the King's Speech, a trend that it started, and these things do go in cycles, I think. The King's Speech, and then the artist, and then. Um, Argo, three movies in a row that that are in a way sort of throwbacks to to a an, an nostalgic uh, look at the way the movies used to be made. You said that about the King's Speech that it was a movie that could have been made easily in the 1950s or 1960s, and the artist goes all the way back to the silent films, and Argo goes back to the 1980s. There's a there's a great number of Academy voters who really like those. To like to see a movie when they can say, yeah, maybe we do make them like we used to. We still can make movies like we used to. Well, it's a success for them because it cost fifteen million or whatever, and it made one hundred and thirty mm-hmm. million. I mean, that at the, at the end of the day, uh, that's really what they look at. That's the old model of success, and that's the current model of success. Um, they will make they will break the rules for movies like Twelve Years a Slave and The Hurt Locker if they're making history, but for the most part, they like them to cost very little and to make a lot of money. Um, everything else is secondary. It reminds me of that scene in Alien. All other, um, what does he say? The, the robot when they're killing, uh, all other considerations, like, expendable or something like that. Right. Like, nothing else right. matters. Nothing matters except that bottom line, and that, that is true. Um, if the social network had cost $20 million and it had made $100 million, it would have had a much better shot at winning than the King's Speech, which was a runaway hit. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't, you can't, uh, you can't discount that. Like it was. The social network did make a hundred million, but it did. It cost forty, and, and, well, and so it, it, it made back about twice what it cost. But whereas the social, uh, whereas the King's Speech, like you said, made back ten times what it cost. Right. And another thing too, the, the social network had already made all the money it was conceivably going to make. It was already out on DVD before the nominations came out. I think. Because I think they sent out the actual retail DVD as a screener, but the King's Speech, on the other hand, had only earned fifty million dollars before the nominations, and then it went on to earn another hundred million dollars domestically and God knows how much internationally. So that's what the Academy likes to do too. They like to take a movie that is that is is um, barely has is holding on by its fingertips and to boost it into the stratosphere they like to know know that they have that power they can take a movie that only has earned 50 million dollars and and turn it into a 40 400 million dollar worldwide hit yeah they do they do um i it's still it's always going to be a year that that eats away at my soul and it'll always be the the moment that that um I kind of lost faith 100% with the Oscars and I've never gotten it back since then. Um it's it's, well, it's a film I of I got it back this past year. 
Well, I'm a lot older than you, and I've been doing yeah. it a lot longer. Yeah. I've been doing it for 15 years, and I'm almost 50 years old. And this was the moment that the film of disillusionment covered my eyes, and I thought, okay, that's it. Yeah. That's it. Really, this is what yeah. the Oscars are about. This is what Aside from about. a couple of awards last this current year, though, I mean, I would have liked to see Steve McQueen win, and I didn't really think that Tarantino deserved to have the Best Screenplay Oscar. But aside from that, I thought that this year's Oscars were really pretty good. I mean, I'm impressed by, by what they were able to do. I mean, I enjoyed the Oscar telecast from beginning to end, from the moment that... Farrell danced with Lupita Nyong'o. I mean, that was the night. The, the night was it, it was a bliss for me, really, yeah. beginning to end. It was fine. I mean, I, I'm again not that thrilled about Gravity winning all those Oscars. I don't think it deserved to win them, but fine. Yeah. That's what people yeah. think. That's fine. Again, like I say, like my heart was broken, 2010, and so no year is ever going to upset me. Although the Link, Lincoln came pretty close, <laughs> Lincoln uh, and Argo came pretty close, rough. but it wasn't as bad as 2010. Nothing will ever be that bad again. Your first heartbreak is always the worst. It is. The first <laughs> cut is the deepest. <laughs> but um, but I, I love the social network, and, and the great thing about that year was that I, it was the year that I learned that the Oscars don't matter. In late November, I got the email from Mark telling me to come out for the millionth member party. What else did the email say? It said that we had to have a business meeting. That Mark and Sean had played some kind of revenge stunt on Case Equity. And that Manningham was so impressed that he was now making an investment offer that was hard to turn down. So I went to California, and I went straight to the new offices. I didn't know whether to dress for the party or for the business meeting, so I kind of dressed for both. But it didn't matter. Why not? Because I wasn't called out there for either one. What were you called out there for? An ambush. Mr. Sabra, hey, First I thought he was joking, giving me more contracts to sign. But then I started reading. What is this? Well, uh, as you know, we had some new investors that have come. What in. is this? Million new shares of stock. You were told that if new investors came How much along, were your shares diluted? How much were his? What was Mr. Zuckerberg's ownership share diluted down to? It wasn't. What was Mr. Moskowitz's ownership share diluted down to? It wasn't. What was Sean Parker's ownership share diluted down to? It wasn't. What was Peter Thiel's ownership share diluted down to? It wasn't. And what was your ownership share diluted down to? 0.03%. You signed the papers. You set me up. You're going to blame me because you were the business head of the company and you made a bad business deal with your own company. This is going to be like I'm not a part of Facebook. It won't be like you're not a part of Facebook. You're not a part of Facebook. My name's on the masthead. You might want to check again. 
It's because I froze the account? You think we were gonna let you parade around in your ridiculous suits pretending you were running this company? Sorry, my brothers and the cleaners! Along with my hoodie and my fuck you flip-flops, you pretentious douchebag! Security's here, you'll be leaving now? I'm not signing those papers. We will get the signature. Tell me this isn't about me getting into the Phoenix. I knew you did it. You planted that story about the chicken. I didn't plant the story about the chicken. What's he talking about? You had me accused of animal cruelty. Seriously, what the hell's the chicken? And I'll bet what you hated the most is that they identified me as a co-founder of Facebook, which I am. You better lawyer up, asshole, because I'm not coming back for 30%. I'm coming back for everything. Get him out of here. It's okay, I'm going. Hang on. I almost forgot. Here's your $19,000. I wouldn't cash it, though. I drew it on the account you froze. I like sitting next to you, Sean. It makes me look so tough. That's it. That's our show for tonight, people. Look, I want to see everyone here geared up for a party. We're going to walk into that club like it's the Macy's Parade. Mackie, put it up on the big screen. We've got to almost be there. You all right? You're kind of rough on him. That's life in the NFL. You know you didn't have to be that rough on him. Listen, I'm putting Shut together a party. You didn't have to be that rough on him. He almost killed it. I'll send flowers. Yes, this year was great in terms of rewarding 12 Years a Slave and making fucking history finally. Yes, that mattered. But other than that, um, they're, they're, they're behind the times. They, the, mm -hmm. Not just the Oscars, the, indus, the whole industry. They're, they have their head up their ass. And part of that, I have to say, is the date change. Like, what they've done is they've taken the public out of the vote um, and so the Oscars are really decided before the movies ever even get to the public. I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't know if that would, how much. I think it's bad. You know it's bad. I thought it was really, <laughs> I thought that the first time that we saw how bad it could be was when Million Dollar Baby won. Because when Million Dollar Baby won, every, was starting to win everything before it had even been released into theaters across the country. And so then it became a matter of the audience wants to go see what the big deal is all about instead of the other way around. The, the audience turns up to go see what won Best Picture instead of Best Picture reflecting what the audience wants to see. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because the people that I talked to outside of, of the Oscar race in 2010, I queried a lot of people, and most of them said they liked the King's speech. But if I said, do you think it deserved to win Best Picture, they would 100% of them say no. Mm -hmm. And I say, why? I just didn't think it was good enough. And, mm -hmm. and then I say, well, why did you like it so much? She said, I don't know. It was a good movie. But I, that's the thing is like I think people used to think that the uh, that the Academy Awards were supposed to mean something, not just this is what people liked, you know, mm -hmm. not just one step up from the People's Choice Awards, but rather we are a, a distinguished group that picks stuff that matters. That you know, uh, all the years that I've invested in them, I, I discovered that it's not so much that they are one or the other it's not really you can't really say they only vote for what they like and they they never reward excellence they do both 
But what they need is an incentive to vote, whether that incentive is finally rewarding Martin Scorsese or acknowledging... Or the first female director or the first black film directed by a black man, you know. The, right. Like you said, it has to be a milestone sort of thing because they can rally around. Or in this year, it was the British Film Council, and it was a very savvy mm-hmm. Oscar strategist making sure people knew that. That's, you know, you've talked... I mean, the way that you talked about that tonight is the first time I ever really considered it. I don't know that we've ever really discussed that, even on the site, talked about how important that was. But you really made it that point really well. Can I be the guy now, who though, who says that maybe we should, that the, the King speech um, social network thing is definitely, the, the for us, the most scandalous travesty that happened, ha- happened since broke back and crashed. But maybe now want to go and talk about some of the other good things that happened that, that year, some yeah. of the other great movies that from 2010? Well, it was a fantastic lineup. I mean, there's not a stinker in the bunch, all 10 of them, other than The Fighter. Um, no, a lot of people love The Fighter, but but these are great movies, 10 great movies. It was it was one of two years where they had 10 um, nomination slots for film mm-hmm. instead of now where they have five, um, which has made for a worse... Well, actually, I can't really say that because last year's was pretty good, so I, I forget what I just said, but... Winter's Bone, True Grit, Toy Story 3, Social Network, Kids Are All Right, Inception, The Fighter, Black Swan, 127 Hours, and The King's Speech. I mean, you're looking at a lineup of films that are so good, it almost doesn't even matter which one won. And also so diverse. I mean, every single movie is almost a totally different genre of its own, which you rarely, hardly ever see that. And you see movies of all different kinds of budgets, from the very low-budget Winter's Bone to the to the huge blockbuster Summer Tempo like Inception. You yeah. see a, a diversity that you just, well, I don't know that we'll ever see that again. An animated It's a relatively show. solid year for women, too. I mean, the Kids Are All Right and Winter's Bone are both written and directed directed by women. They got Best mm-hmm. Picture nominations. They got screenplay nominations. And Black Swan, even though it was written and made by a man, it's a distinctly female-centric picture. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Great film about women. Uh, brilliant. Black Swan was brilliant. It did, 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 t- it did take a lot of votes away from uh, the social network, I thought, that year. Um but yes. Off topic just a little bit. I, can I just say that I saw a movie this afternoon with a couple of friends of mine that I that it's going to be coming out on DVD in about 10 or four, or maybe two weeks from now. It's called Bell and it's directed and written by two black, a, a black woman directed it and a black woman wrote it. And and, and, and it's, I'm afraid that, that Bell is going to be one of the movies that gets uh, that falls through the cracks, but I want to be sure to remind people who are listening to the podcast to keep your eye out for this movie. And even if it's not, it, it doesn't become part of a, the awards race, if it's not an awards contender, please see it because it's so fantastic. I really love this movie so much. And sorry to break away into a totally off topic no, that's thing, okay. but. Since the movie is coming out on DVD in a couple of weeks, it's well, you a should, heads you should up write for, something for about it, Ryan. You should write something for the site. Okay, I will. I will definitely. My sure. niece and daughter have been asking me to take them to see that movie for a really long time, so it's definitely hit the younger generations. It's You're going to love it, and Emma will love it. Um, so, best actor, it was an easy win for Colin Firth. No one else even had a shot, not even close. It was just about who could get nominated, and I remember people making a big play for Javier Bardem to get in for Beautiful. Jeff Bridges got a nomination for True Grit. He was fantastic. Jesse Eisenberg was so great, and James Franco was great. They were all five brilliant performances. Um, And then do you guys want to talk about any Best Actor before we move on to Best Actress? 
Um, I had my enthusiasm behind Jeff Bridges at the time, and I, I think Ryan and I have, have talked about this, that we both, I think, sort of wish that the Bridges and the Firth wins were reversed, that Firth had won the previous year, and that for a single man, and Bridges won this year for True Grit, but it, it turned out the reverse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, we said it so many times, it's almost like I'm sure people may be tired of hearing it, but it seems to me so much, would have been so much a better choice to have uh, Colin Firth win for the sing- for a single man and Jeff Bridges to win this year, but it just didn't happen that way. Yeah. The brilliant mm-hmm. Natalie Portman finally wins for Black Swan in an absolutely incomparable role. Annette Benning, um, they kept talking about her winning. She still never won an Oscar, and she's fantastic, and the kids are all right. I, I always watch that movie again and again, just mainly because of her performance. But Julianne Moore is great in it also and should have been nominated. Um, uh, this was the year that launched um, Jennifer Lawrence and Winter's Bone, which is funny because we had to do a lot of heavy advocacy for her and the movie to get in, which is like to me ironic now because she's the biggest star in the world she didn't really need our help but there you go she's just an unknown kid back then though basically no one had ever really heard much about her before before winter's bone yeah it's her best performance she and it's did. a hard movie to get people to watch too because it's so low budget and so low key and so hard to summarize it's not it, and it didn't make a lot of money and so we i think that we really had campaigned really hard for her that year i'm glad we did it just we never would have expected that her her career would have taken off so strongly, though. It's just such a joke that she won for Silver Linings Playbook and not for Winter's Bone, which... I know, that's true. Um, Although you can't you can't deny that Natalie Portman was, was head and shoulders above all the other nominees, I think, that year. Oh, for sure. For yeah. me, yeah. No also, inter- inter- interesting that yeah, something rarely happens, the night before the Oscars, the Independent Spirit Awards, Natalie Portman won Best Actress, Darren Aronofsky won Best Director, and it won Best Feature won Best Cinematography, so it won Best Four Indie Spirit Awards the night before the Oscars, which yeah. ordinarily would be like the death nail. It's the kiss of death, but in this case, it turned out pretty well. It's always the kiss of death for picture, not for, for acting, but um, not right, for 12 yeah. Years mm-hmm. a Slave. Certainly did not hurt 12 Years a Slave. Um, Christian Bale and Melissa Leo uh, won for The Fighter, and, and I, I look at these awards, and I look at the publicists behind them, and I say, hats off to you, like, Blue Valentine, Michelle Williams, 100% publicists getting her in. Um, mm. The fighter... You don't think she was good? She was okay, yeah. It wasn't the greatest performance in the world. She was fine, but that was publicity getting her in there. Um, she was good. No, I thought she was good. I'm just saying, Best Actress nomination? Uh, that was Weinstein Co. Um, so then you have The Fighter and Christian Bale. That's, that's Paramount. They... <laughs> They did an amazing job that year. That was the year that Melissa Leo took out Oscar ads um, for herself, mm-hmm. and she would have been shamed out of the business, except that they flipped that around, and she garnered sympathy, and that helped her to win. Um, she was up against Amy Adams for The Fighter, Helena Bonham Carter, Haley Stan- Seinfeld for True Grit. She had no competition from any of these, not Jackie Weaver, Animal Kingdom. She- Hats off to David O. Russell, which is hard to believe that I'm saying that, but he does know how to write an ensemble movie. He knows how to write really great, juicy, supporting characters in a way that very few writers do nowadays. Yeah. Usually it's just the, it's the, it's the main lead, and, our, and then everybody else is just in the background. But he really brings the supporting characters Front and front and center. Yeah, I don't want to give them really juicy roles to sink their teeth into. Sorry. I definitely don't want to dump on her, and because you know this is probably the only Oscar she's ever going to get. So. And you were an early advocate for Melissa Leo way back when she did that other movie, um, 
what was that Frozen thing? Frozen River. Miss Leah was in that there was such controversy about. Frozen, Frozen River. River. Frozen River, right. Whatever yeah. it was called. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But I, I didn't really like her performance in The Fighter, nor did I like Christian. I thought that they both were just over-the-top scenery-chewing. Um, I blame Russell for that, not them. I mean, it's his decision to choose which take to put in the film, and it's his decision to encourage them to act in a certain way. I didn't like, I didn't like their performances either, because um, they were too they were too big and too over the top, and there's not many actors who can can really get away with that. But I'm happy to blame Russell and not not the performers themselves. They, they gave I read it their a all, quote you know? from George Cukor. I'm, I'm reading a biography of George Cukor right, right now, and I, he said once he took an actor aside and said, "Stop acting, stop acting. You're 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 not on." stage you're in a movie you don't have to act and i feel like the david o russell does the opposite i think he takes his actors aside and he says bigger bigger i would need make it bigger bigger and i that's too big for me i thought in the fighter it was all too big like the fighting of the women i liked amy adams in it probably the best but um I, you know it's fine like again i i'm happy for her she won and i'm happy for christian bale good for them like i, I you know <laughs> fuck it um one of the weird things that happened that year was uh um Alice in Wonderland beating Inception for art direction. <laughs> like, I know it was beautiful and everything, Alice in Wonderland, but it just seems weird to me that um, that Inception didn't win art direction. It did win. It did end up winning four Oscars, though, right? It won sound, and it mm-hmm. won sound editing, and it won visual effects, and it won one other thing. Um, I didn't see Alice in Wonderland, so I can't talk about it. But just from the trailers and stills I've seen of it, it looks like it might have won the Oscar for most art direction. I mean, movies like that that are just overwhelmingly gaudy to me, I don't see how they... They're not tasteful to, to me, and so I can't even stand to look at them. Inception won cinematography. That was its fourth Oscar, yeah. Hmm. So I thought it was weird that it didn't win, but it did win four Oscars. Social Network won three, and King's Speech won three. Screenplay, hmm. director, picture... Is that it? King's Speech 3? Um, I don't know if there's no. I mean, I'm trying to think and look it up real quick. Yeah, I think it only won three. But, um, yeah. So, but what do you guys think of Inception now after all these years? Do you, does it still hold up for you? Oh, yeah. For me, I really, really, really like it very much. I think it's, I think it, uh, Nolan does something that we're always wanting directors of summer tentpole movies to do, is to do something original, mind-blowing, totally unique, that is not based on any other kind of material and surprises you from beginning to end. And uh, very few directors have the power and the clout and, the, frankly, the genius to do that, the, the, the way he does it. That's why I'm looking so much forward to Interstellar. Yeah, and Craig, what did you think? What do you think of Inception? Um, I thought at the time, and I think now that it's a it's a fun Rubik's cube of a movie. But once I've solved it, I never want to play with it again. Oh, hmm. yeah. The only thing that that really I love about Inception um, now is uh, the Marion Cotillard part. Like, I just think she's just she she just like you know is so mesmerizing in that part of the wife. And the weird thing about it was, this is a good opportunity to talk about Shutter Island, was that there were similarities between Shutter Island and Inception. Like, they both had the wife memory, and they both had murdering the wife memory, and they both played with time. And reality. And reality. Perceptions of reality. What what, what can you trust and what you think that you're seeing? Yeah. And I I agree with you, Craig, that I think Shutter Island and Ryan, I know you love Shutter Island, um, Mm. that it was one of the best films of that year that didn't get any recognition. 
It's but so the reason it, that it's, it, it wears its heart on its sleeve, and it's so gaudy and weird that I think it's easy for people to 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 laugh at a little bit. Whereas Inception is very sharp, very smart, very stylish, and very sexy looking, and it it's it's it kind of makes you go wow. Whereas whereas Shutter Island is sort of this weird sort of scattershot seeming mess. I don't think it's really it's it's not as easy to see the brilliance behind it because it's so it's so lurid and out there kind of yeah it's almost got well it's definitely i mean not almost but scorsese definitely went back to look at a lot of gothic horror films in order to get the look and and feel and sensation of shutter island the the novel is like that and the and the movie's even more so it's gothic in in its intensity yeah. And I think everybody, one thing that was shocking about Shutter Island is that Paramount decided not to release it in the heat of Oscar season on, in, around Christmas, but they waited and held on to it until February, right. which is usually means that they don't have much faith in a movie. But really, I think that they saw that it was a genre film, and that genre films of this type rarely are going to be nominated for Best Picture or Best Director. So they decided to put it and give it a a release date where they can make the most money from it. And it turned out to be Scorsese and DiCaprio's biggest moneymaker to date. Wow. So they made a wide deci- wise decision financially. Even more than Wolf of Wall Street? Uh, at, at, up until that time, I mean. Up until oh. that time, Shutter Island was their, was their, had made more money than any of their other collaborations. I do think you're right about Wolf of Wall Street has now surpassed it. And it, it, it's the only collaboration of them that didn't get a Best Picture nomination, I think, right? Like, uh, mm-hmm. but and I, but it's because of the release date. I think specifically, I don't think it opened in in American time to qualify. I'm really well. Gonna... They they put their finger to the wind. I think they were originally planning on releasing it in in the heat of Oscar season, and I'm glad that they didn't because I think it would have gotten killed. It already struggled with critics as it was. Audiences mm-hmm. fell for it, and that's all that really matters. The critics t- kind of turned up their nose because it it seemed kind of taught and disrespectable or mm-hmm. unrespectable. It didn't um, even... And so I, I think the studio realized that it's just going to get killed in the Oscar season and they were better off waiting until there was not as much go- else going on, releasing it in February where there's no good movies for adults out and adults flock to it. And they were right. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, be- because I think the thing was, I think we were people were hoping that they would release it in December of 2009. See, we, we, we people were hoping that it would be it would qualify for the 2009 Oscars, but they decided to hold on to it until February 2010. It didn't even qualify. It didn't even do a qualifying run in December at all. They just held on. They just held back on it completely. Because I think partly when you're looking at a Scorsese film, if they'd released it in December and it had been lost in the shuffle, and people had seen, well, here they're trying to get an Oscar by releasing it in Oscar season and it didn't get any nominations then it would look like a failure see but it doesn't have that failure attached to it if they don't even try to win an oscar at all right that, that's what i was saying yeah maybe okay i just rephrased what you were saying sorry and that's uh, all right. you know the speaking of gothic i love that idea because i feel like there were three gothic movies that year there was um shutter island there was inception and then there was um, Ghost Rider, which and is, Black Swan, and Black, Black Swan. Swan is very gothic. And if you take Ghost Rider, which was Polanski's movie starring Ewan McGregor, um, Olivia Williams, and a really funny small part by what's her name, Samantha from Sex and the City, Kim Cattrall. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ghost Rider is so bizarre, but to me, it it, it fits in the same category as um, Shutter Island um, and and Inception, Black Swan. You know, a little bit. 
for me, it feels a little more surreal than it does gothic, but but they're all kind of surreal, you know. Um, anyway, it's a it's an interesting idea, and and the only reason you couldn't write about something like that is because none of those movies have, um, other than Black Swan, have critical clout now, mm-hmm. you know. You know what? I read the, the screenplay for Black Swan six or seven months before the movie came out, and I, I thought, oh no, this is going to be awful. I don't see how this can be anything. It is so, it's almost corny, it's so cheesy, and it's soap opera-ish, because I had no idea what he was going to do with it visually and stylistically. You can't read a screenplay, even though you know it's Aronofsky, and even imagine what he, what he has in mind to do on screen with the cinematography and the editing and the, and, the, and the atmosphere that he can create. On paper, it didn't look like anything at all. It looked like really, it looked really corny and bland, but on screen, it, it's my number, it's my second favorite movie of the year. Oh, and it's it seems like a, It seems on paper like a tawdry genre picture, and it kind of mm-hmm. plays that way in the same way that Shutter Island does. And I think an earlier example is um, Adam McGoyan's Chloe, which is the same thing. It seems just like this sleazy, fatal attraction-y kind of film, but they don't, your people aren't paying attention to the psychological, psychological subtext. And what makes them interesting, and Shutter Island included, is that you're getting inside the mind of potentially crazy people. And so you can't, you can't judge the movie... On, on ordinary person terms. You're seeing things through the lens of somebody who's losing touch with reality. And so it seems mm-hmm. it, it's perfectly natural for it to be weird and lurid and over the top. Yes, exactly. That's a great way to sum but, it up. But people look at it and go, oh, well, that's just corny and cheesy. Mm-hmm. Um, we were asked specifically to talk about the ghostwriter. Um, uh, what did you guys think of it? One thing I love about it so much that it it it's it, it, it does something with you mentally because because Polanski can't come to America to film movies he has to duplicate the look of North America and specifically New York City other places in the world and it gives you a disconnect even though you're supposed to be taking place on the east coast of America you know that it's not, it doesn't look right. It doesn't look right and feel right. The, the light is different. The sky is different. The, the ocean is different. And so you have this disconnect between what you think you should be seeing and what you're not, which, which gives a really eerie, another one of those um, surreal kind of effects that, that's really gothic, that, that works to his advantage. Mm. It bugs people, though, who don't like that. And, they, and I remember being criticized for that. And I remember, you know, uh, Kubrick was criticized for the same thing for Eyes Wide Shut because he filmed mm. it on a set in England, and it didn't look like New York. And people don't realize that there's a psychological reality that these people are trying to capture, not a visual reality. And that these people are geniuses, and there's reasons why they're making the choices that they're making. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter that it's authentic or genuine. It's a, it, it works. It gets inside your head in a different way than, authentic, than an authentic movie does. Right. I always forget until... I see a moment like that, like what a great director Roman Polanski was and still is. And for me, Ghost Rider has that last shot, um, which is so great. And that's the kind of shot that no, like not just any old director would have been able to pull off. But that, that is absolutely Polanski. That's Chinatown. You know, that is like... Because he gets killed, but you don't see him get killed. It's like kind of off screen, and, and you just see the papers of the book mm-hmm. just floating. As bad as the movie is up until that point, 
Uh, well, I get I you know in movies that two movies that I kind of got confused back in at the time were Another Year and 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 uh, Happy Go Lucky because they both have some things in common thematically, specifically the fact that Leslie Manville and and the who who played Poppy and Happy Go Lucky, I don't the know. actress. I don't know. Oh, what's her name? <laughs> <laughs> We're so terrible, but anyway, they're both learning to drive. They both get their get their first car, and happy go lucky. Poppy gets lucky to get the car, but in another year, the car brings nothing but tragedy to Leslie Manville's character. It brings her nothing but bad luck. Okay. So she's she's like the evil twin of of Poppy and Happy Go Lucky, Leslie Manville's character. Can you say what you were saying, Craig, before I interrupted you? Um, I'm kind of repeating myself. The thing that I say about Mike Lee every time he makes a movie and we talk about the Oscars that year is that I always, he's so easy to underestimate because his movies are so subtle. And I I forget how much I like him unless there's a movie of his in front of me and I'm watching it. So, and and another year's another one of those that you just go, oh yeah, I love that movie, but it's almost easy. It's so unassuming. It's almost... And it, and it doesn't overstate itself. It's 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 easy to to, to not think about it. Mm-hmm. It's another one of those movies, and he makes movies that are. It's difficult to to sum them up. They seem like they're almost plotless. That's why I was saying earlier that that in a way, Boyhood reminds me of Another Year right. a lot, and a lot of Mike Lee's films in general is because they seem to meander, and you don't understand that they haven't been meandering at all until the until you look back on them and you see how it all fits together, and they really are thematically very cohesive, and they have a lot to say that you don't realize that they're saying because, as you say, they say that so quietly. They don't they don't underline. They don't underscore the points that they make. They sort of reverberate with you later, long time after you've seen the movies. Right, and they're all they're all little real moments rather than these huge dramatic crescendos. Exactly. But they but, they, yeah. but it adds up over the course of two hours until at the end of it, it, it leaves you feeling like you were kicked in the stomach. And there's that natural verisimilitude, the way that the lines are delivered, that they don't even seem like the lines could possibly be written. They seem like lines that people are making up in their own heads at the spur of the moment because there is that collaboration with his actors that very few other, other directors do besides Richard Linklater and, and Mike Lee, where they allow the actors to participate in the creation of the characters. Yeah. It's the opposite of Sorkin. I think mm-hmm. if they had run... Leslie Manville in supporting, she might have had a better shot of getting a nomination as opposed to... She did yeah, a lot you know, of... and really she is a... I, I think even though she's a central character, she really is a, a supporting character because it's the couple. It is... Um, oh, who are the actors? Damn it. I can't even think. Um, I'll look it up here really quickly. But it's, it's the couple who... Uh, Jim, Broad, Jim Broadbent and... Um, and... Rasheen. Uh, who are not big stars, major stars in any way, but they are fixtures in Mike Lee films. You see them again and again. But it's they're the central couple, and Leslie Manville is really just a part of their circle of friends. But she is central to the movie, and She's you realize so that. She's so great. She's so great. It's a brilliant mm. performance. I, I just loved it. It's a sad it was, character. She is mm. so sad. It's such a great movie. And, and it's a shame that she missed out on a nomination. Uh, well... But anyway, I just want I wanted to say that uh, I love another year so much that over the years it's risen from like number twelve to number ten, eight, seven, six, and now it's like my third favorite movie of the year, right up there with The Social Network. Wow, that's I funny really love how it so much, and that's why I'm looking so forward to to Mr. Turner this mm, year. That's a great movie. 
Oh, it's so good. I can't wait to see it again. I don't know how that's going to do with the Oscar voters. I mean, it might be too... I think Timothy Spall is going to get Leslie Manville to not get nominated. Oh. Oh, no. I'm saying that so it doesn't happen, by the way. Oh, no. It's just such a competitive year for actor. It's so competitive. And it, it seems like it's a tough movie for for voters to pay attention to with their, their short attention spans. But we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Best actor is always crowded. It's already crowded. So... You know, Ruth Sheen, who was in Another Year, she also plays a major role in Mr. Turner. She's um, someone called Sarah Danby in yeah, Mr. I Turner. I don't know how. She plays his, how... wife, his angry ex-wife. Oh, is that right? She's great. Yeah. She's great. She's, she's, she's great. fantastic. They're all good. Only Mike Lee has the balls to cast women who look like real women. You know? I know, really. I was about to say, but I didn't know how to phrase it. I'm so glad that you said it for me. That he cast people. He cast people, not just women, but men, too, but especially women that you just never see cast in American films. Mm-mm. Yeah, it's more common for for ordinary-looking men to be cast in a movie in America than ordinary-looking women. But Mike Lee mm-hmm. does both, right? Yeah, he does. It's it's a it's a beautiful movie. Thanks for reminding me of another year. I think I'm gonna try to watch that again because I, I have a feeling now that I garden all the time, I'll, I'll really like to watch that with garden. Uh-huh. Uh, I wish have... that I'd rewatched it for this and that it was more fresh in my mind because mm-hmm. I loved it too. When when I didn't I didn't know that you were gardening until after I had seen another year, but every time that you mention your gardening, I guy I think back about another year. The third one is not as good as the first two. It's still a pretty good yeah. hat trick. It's a pretty good hat the, trick to pull. Yeah, the it's deal. one of the few series of sequels that sort of justify their existence because it because it follows the progression of one character as he grows up, and so it, it makes sense at least that there was a third one. And also. I thought it was admirable how dark it went. There's that scene where all the toys are headed to their doom and into the yeah. pit mm-hmm. of fire, and it was, that was actually genuinely scary, and I don't remember seeing Pixar go that dark before. I was a little surprised by that. It and they may never so again now that Disney has taken over. It was so sweet how he has to say goodbye to his toy, and then he ends up giving it to another young person. Like The mm-hmm. message of it is so beautiful. It's just that How to Train Your Dragon, I thought, was more sophisticated and original. But yes, Toy Story 3, absolutely an admirable finish to a great series. They didn't dragon felt fresh and new, and that, that was one of the appealing things yeah. about it. It's also just an incredibly moving story of a dragon and a kid and how they make the, dra- the metaphor for the dragons about animals. And there was just... There was a lot mm-hmm. more to it for me. Like, Toy Story 3, as much as I love it, like... It doesn't speak to my, to me as a, uh, you know, a toy person the way that it did a lot of people who watched it of the the target dem- generation of people who write about movies now. That's right in their wheelhouse. Right, that's what I was saying before. They're, and yeah. they're they're all boys' toys too. That's another thing about them. They're boy toys. Mostly, they're, you know, yeah. They're, they're cowboys and they're soldiers and things like that that maybe that you didn't experience with Emma. Well, she didn't have those kinds of toys. She she out. did. She had toys. Oh, okay. But the I, thing is, is well, that's um, great. the um, first one was so good with the misfit toys, the deformed toys, like that. Huh? That was pretty dark, actually. Yeah, um, it, was, it was amazing. That you're right. That was pretty dark. I take back what I said about the conveyor of doom. And that mean Sid kid who was torturing the toys, like all right. that was yeah. pretty. I loved both. I liked two because two had Jesse. Two had the the girl. Mm-hmm. You know? the, all three of them are kind of have a, a sick edge to them in a way that I like that they're, all, they're almost macabre. Yeah, totally. There is a macabre element to them. Yeah. You know, that's one great thing about Pixar is they do make great animated films. They just do. You know, it's easy yeah. to take them for granted because they have such a huge fan base and the, the fans are really irritating. 
but mm-hmm. their um, but their movies are fucking great. You know. We should talk about the voice acting in them too. Tom Hanks and Tim Allen are are spectacular, just as the main characters. But all of the all of the distinctive supporting characters are fabulous too. I think it's I think it's probably the 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 best thing that Tim Allen has ever done on a big screen is, is voicing Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> Buzz Lightyear. So not only did my daughter watch Toy Story, but my little nephew was obsessed with Buzz Lightyear and Woody, and he had them in his crib all the time. Like these were, you know, I watched these kids grow up with these Toy Stories. This is Ben. Characters. Yeah, Ben. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> he loved Buzz Lightyear. It's so cute. Ah, oh, great, great, great. One other movie that I really like a lot from 2010, before I learned to grumble about Ben Affleck, I learned, I, I was really had high hopes for him and still do. I still, still think that he's going to go on to do great things, but he made The Town right. in 2010, which is also in probably my top five movies of that year. And as much as I like the original theatrical version of The Town, the director's cut that adds 25 minutes to it, I think is even better. It's a great movie. It's better than Argo for sure, but. Um, oh, so much better. The. Uh... It was competing with 127 hours, and for some reason, I mean, I think that's why he was so invested in in winning, because the town got so close. It got mm-hmm. like a PGA nomination and a Critics' Choice nomination. It uh, American Film Institute named it one of the ten best movies of the year. Yeah, it got it got really really far, but then at the last minute, for some reason, they just they they didn't honor him, you know, and he was kind of overlooked for that and for Gone Baby Gone. And I think that by the time Argo came along, he felt finally vindicated, like, wow, they're actually paying attention to me, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder what else I'm trying to think. It seems like there was something else going on. Warner Brothers had more than one pony in the race that year in 2010. And so maybe they, they decided to throw their weight, more weight behind the other movie. I'm just, I, I can't, I'll verify that just a second here, trying to look and see what else Warner Brothers had in 2010. Hmm. They had Hereafter, and not really. Maybe I'm wrong about that. It was Inception. Never mind. Never mind. Sorry. Inception was their big movie, yeah. Oh, yeah, Inception. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. that's why I'm not seeing it, because it was earlier in the... It was a summer movie. So, yeah, the, the Warner Brothers already had a, a really strong contender with Inception, and right. so they might have put more of their weight behind that than they did the town. And nowadays, the way things are, like it, it, if since they're able to split up picture director, <clears throat> it would have been a it would have been a fight for best director if you're not thinking of uniting them. Like Darren Aronofsky and and um, um, uh, Christopher Nolan would have given Fincher some heat in that department. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. those guys would have been up for could have won best director if they weren't going to give it to hooper especially since we've seen the academy having more of a tendency lately to want to award the director who does something really technically groundbreaking flashy as as ang lee did and and uh, alfonso cuaron did to do something that that seems to advance the art of film visually in ways that that a more traditional movie does not i really wish the academy would have a effects driven best picture category and Mm -hmm. then so that they could stop with the visually effect visual effects to best director winning because mm-hmm. a lot of directors their art isn't about special effects like they don't want to do what Alfonso Cuarón's doing they don't want to do what Jim Cameron's doing with Avatar you know they want to make movies that are movies you know that uh-huh. aren't a, 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 an amalgam of, of visual effects that aren't fifty percent the visual effects company 
realizing I will say, though, about Fincher that he makes his, he does a lot of visual effects, but they're invisible. They don't stand out as visual effects. But if you watch the, the, the special features disc for Zodiac, there's like two hours of special effects analysis that he does, and the entire background atmosphere of Zodiac is created in the computer. Right. But, you, but it's invisible. You don't notice it, so it's not, it doesn't look like it, it doesn't dazzle you in the same way. He's not showing off with a new toy with his special effects. He's using them to advance his story and to advance his art. I mean, even Social Network, the fact that he had the same actor playing two different people, and mm -hmm. I didn't, because it's Fincher, I didn't know anything about the Social Network before I went to see it. He's one of maybe five or seven directors where I go out of my way to avoid knowing anything about it before the movie comes out. So I had no idea that Arnie Hammer played both characters. That That's how seamless and unshow-offy those effects were. Mm. Yeah. He, he he uses the special effects as a tool, and instead of a instead of a, a showcase, instead of instead of trying to showcase them, it's just another tool in his toolbox. And he does it he does it so he can have more control, so he can exercise his perfectionist control over movies too. Yeah, and he wouldn't want you to to be taken outside the movie and go, oh right. wow, cool. Mm -hmm. He would want you to think that, oh wow, that that actually happened. You know, they're not special effects for the sake of making the audience go, wow, look at that cool effect. Right, right, right. Which is more Jim Cameron's line of business. Exactly, yeah. And I, I felt... Not that there's anything wrong with that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. There's always a place... It can be really fun and entertaining to see that, but yeah. not very... It doesn't feed you in the same way, intellectually or emotionally. Right, right, right. Well, I think we've done a pretty good job here for 2010, and I don't think that we were too mean to the King's speech, right? I mean... Kicking puppies. I think we were. I was. I. I. Yeah. I could have. We could have been meaner. Let's say that. Let's just put it that way. We could have been meaner if we'd wanted to. But there's so no point. Like they like the right. movie. They picked the movie. That reflects on them. You know. I, I really do like this idea of there being two best picture winners that year, and the critics picked the Social Network, and the industry picked the King's Speech. And I'm sticking to that. You know. I don't think that best picture of the year just has to be the Academy's. That was the industry's choice. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, yeah, that's the Oscar race. So wouldn't it be great if every year we could think of it that way? But usually the critics, um, especially since the social network, have not aligned behind one movie like that. And I, ever, like before or since. And I think that you're right. I think that, that, that they felt so burned by that that yeah. they're not willing to put themselves out on a limb like that anymore. They're not, right. they're, they haven't so, shown a tendency to want to, to advocate for a movie like that and see it backfire and blow up in their faces and, yeah. ever again. And I, I would just wish that people wouldn't take that out on the social network. I wish that they would, they would not hold the movie responsible for that, for the Academy and the industry not choosing it. Um, and that doesn't make it a worse film. That just makes that other movie more to their collective taste for whatever reason you know mm -hmm. just, uh, it happens to the king's speech though too in a different way for people who were fans of a different film they i think they underestimate the king's speech because it did win and because it wasn't the best movie of the year they hold it responsible when it's really not the king's speech's fault it's really a lovely likable movie it just was at the wrong place at the wrong time yeah, I think that's that's one of the things I don't like about the Oscar race that that it's that it becomes a team sport and things get torn down because it's not you're not on that team. But things get torn down anyway, even if it's not a team in the Oscar race every year. It's just the way that it goes. Like I think people just get sick of of seeing movies win and lose. Like you say, it's a 
if that movie wins, people think of it as a winner. If it doesn't win, it's thought of as a loser. But most of the time, I have found throughout the years that I've been watching Oscar and thinking about Oscar and writing about Oscar before I ever even did the website, generally speaking, people poo-poo the winner. Almost always. Not just with the King's Speech, with every movie. As soon as it wins, people hate it. Mm-hmm. And in a way, The Social Network's the only film that I've seen get punished for not winning. So, right, I think so. Yeah, that's I hadn't thought about it in those terms before. Because, but you're right. The movies that lose can sometimes become they're they're the movies that people hold so close to their hearts sometimes and hold so dearly. That that hasn't been the case with Social Network, except for just a few of us. Yeah, and and I think time will will even that out, and I do think it'll make Sight and Sounds list eventually once people forgive Fincher for that. Um, but you know, movies like The Godfather, and you know, those are always going to be beloved. But for the most part, it feels like the moment a, a movie wins, critics and and you know, people automatically just say that wasn't that good. It didn't deserve to win. Mm-hmm. You know. I don't know. It's funny. Like I think people will be hating on Twelve Years a Slave for a very long time for that reason because it won. And if it didn't win, it would have been held in higher esteem, probably. Especially when there's another movie that so many people love so much that they turn it into a seven hundred million dollar worldwide phenomenon, like Gravity. When people and piece which demonstrates how much people love Gravity, when there are so many people who really had such high hopes for Gravity, there that's a that's a big mob. That's a big army of people to have it turn against the the actual winner. Or Avatar, for that or matter. Or Avatar, yeah. Same, same thing, yeah. And in both cases, history was made in a different direction. Um, yeah. I'm not really up for Oscars rewarding uh, movies that are big visual effects movies. I used to think that they need to evolve, but I don't think that they need to have their best picture be that. I think it should be something more than just something that's dazzling visually. I think there needs to be a lot more depth to it and good writing and you know craftsmanship and all of these things that make a best picture, I think that a visually effects film should be in its own category. Yeah. Because it has, it requires such a different team of, of, um, of and it's trying to do a different thing. It, it, it's, it's, it has a different goal than, than movies that are more script and character oriented. Right. And I think people like, like in the case of both of these movies, like I think they like to harpoon something that is that successful. Like what does mm-hmm. that need? What is a movie that made you know, is the highest grossing film of all time, like Avatar, what does that movie need an Oscar for? You know? Yeah. Plus, if, if the regular people like it, then the snobs think it, that it must somehow be suspect. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and again, I mean, I do agree that if a movie makes that much money, what does it need an Oscar for? Like, an Oscar can do a lot of good, but anointing a film like Avatar, <laughs> that doesn't really do much for anybody. It does something for Jim Cameron, you know. But um, and I guess the fans who love the movie, they feel like they're part of something like the Oscars, you know. And it's an affirmation. An oh, affirmation, a validation of their tastes, right? Right. It's been. I can't even. I'm trying to think of a, a movie that has been enormously popular success that was also. That has also stood the test of time, and really you have to go all the way back to maybe Gone with the Wind to find a movie that has endured, and not as if Gone with the Wind is a is a is a great intellectual monumental monumental thing intellectually, but it is it has really stood the test of time. But Godfather was, though, Godfather was a huge blockbuster. Oh right, yeah, there you go. There's another one. Um, and Titanic, I suppose you could put mm-hmm. that in there. 
but they're few and far between. It's a really rare thing when when they can hit every punch, every button like that, and, and yeah. fire on all cylinders. I mean, uh, Citizen Kane still suffers from. Um, I mean, uh, How Green Was My Valley still suffers from losing to Citizen Kane, which is considered the greatest film of all time. And you notice that Vertigo um, overtook it on the sight and sound poll. And I don't know what won that year that Vertigo was up, but nobody ever talks about the film that beat Vertigo because Vertigo wasn't even nominated for Best mm-hmm. Yeah, it wasn't even in play that year. It only it only won like Best, I think it might have only been nominated for Best Sound or something. Art Direction and Sound. Mm-hmm. So, But nobody talks about the movie that won you know, being bad, and and uh, and the thing is, is how green was my valley. I understand why it won now because John Ford, he had won already two best director. He was like Ang Lee; he'd won two best director, but none of his films had won best picture yet. Mm-hmm. And when How Green Was My Valley came along, he won director and picture. So it was really an insular story being told. It wasn't so much we don't think Citizen Kane is. In 1959 and 1958, the year that Vertigo was overlooked entirely, uh, Gigi won Best Picture. Oh, and the other nominees were Anti-Mame <laughs> and uh, Separate Tables and the Defiant Ones and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Yikes. Gigi. But Gigi winning Best Picture, I mean, that is not one of the most... That's not one of the best Academy choices, I don't think. It's just different. I guess it's just different sensibilities. You know, the critics have a different idea than the than the public and the industry. Everybody has their different ideas. You know, honestly, if I, yeah, I won't even say it. I'll say it off off the mic to you guys about Mm -hmm. it. But Gigi even won Best Director for Vincent Minnelli that year. Which Vincent Minnelli? I'm glad he has an Oscar, but not for that movie. Oh, God, the Academy. What are you going to do, right? But notice how, I mean, people do poo-poo Gigi, but not in the same way they do How Green Was My Valley. Right, you never think about it. Nobody ever mentions Vertigo and Gigi in the same breath, as if Gigi stole Vertigo's Oscar. Nobody ever says that. No, but I do feel like people are, that John Ford has been vindicated in years since, and and people revise that history, I think, and they say, you know. Turns out How Green Is My Valley is pretty great, whereas Gigi's still kind of a turd. (laughs) How Green Was My Valley is an incredible movie It really is And John Ford deserved to win You know, and and besides Orson Welles holds the You know, Orson Welles Other than the sight and sound Stupid, you know, stupid Shuffling of salt and pepper shakers You know um, Still considered one of the greatest films of all time Citizen Kane And Gigi was about to do something that really sort of saved Hollywood throughout the 60s. It kicked off a decade of of, of big-budget musicals that really kept Hollywood's head above water during the the introduction of the television craze, right? It was the thing that people go to the movies and see something like that that they can never experience on TV at home. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure Vertigo was kind of considered a flop. It was not well-received by audiences or critics at the time. No, it wasn't, so... How was it supposed to win, you know? I think I tweeted something a couple of weeks ago. The, the critic for The New Yorker um, said that he had never seen Hitchcock do anything that was so, that was so absurd and nonsensical as Vertigo. <laughs> That's The New Yorker. Was that Bosley Crowther? No, it was The New Yorker magazine. It was a oh, critic New Yorker, who New is not a famous name. I'll have to look up his name, but he's not. He was, he was sort of, that was before The New Yorker became, that was before the, the, the years of Pauline Kael. It was the critic just before Pauline Kael took was on took on took over. 
Just one last thing before we shut it down. I just want to give a shout out to Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross for the social network, which is their first collaboration with Fincher. Second was Dragon Tattoo, a masterpiece, I thought. Didn't get an Oscar nomination. And the third will be Gone Girl. And uh, Maybe the third time's a charm. Maybe. Hopefully it'll be great, the music. The soundtrack for the social network is spectacular. I don't know that I thought about it much after I'd first seen the movie, but rewatching it, it's just amazing. It's another element along with Sorkin's dialogue that that really makes the movie snap Mm. when it could have been kind of dull. It's great. I listen to that soundtrack a lot, especially when I'm writing. It always gets me through. Just start at the beginning and listen to it all the way through. It's, It's phenomenal. It's really, really great. Perfect. Dragon Tattoo is sort of more of its own thing. Like, it's its own masterpiece on its own. Um, you don't really think of it in terms of the movie as much. Social Network, that that score is woven throughout every scene. It is a player. It is a character in the film. It's incredible. So, and he won the Oscar. Mr. Reznor was one of the three Oscars that Social Network won, which was very nice. And uh, won Best Editing, too, Angus Wall, and who's his, his, his partner, Angus Kirk Wall's Baxter. partner? Baxter. Baxter. And Baxter, they, right. They also, and, um, and they won the following year for, uh, I mean, they, then they won for Fincher's next film, The Social Network. I mean, Dragon so, Tattoo. Uh, Dragon Tattoo, right. They won for Dragon Tattoo, and they, um, they were the first film since Bullet in the 1960s to win... Best editing without a best picture nomination. Oh wow! And any hmm. other nomination? Yeah, it was a, it was pretty cool that they won editing that year too. That showed mm-hmm. that that showed support for Dragon Tattoo, which did not get a best picture nomination and should have and would have if there were ten slots. It's just it got a, a, the DGA nominated Fincher for the, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, right. and um, of course Rooney Mara was nominated for Best Actress. So it's not as if people didn't like that movie a lot, but it just barely did. It was just on the cusp of getting into the Best Picture With 10, ten nominations they on the ballot, they would have gotten it in. But with, with, with five nominations, it's hard to imagine anybody putting Dragon Tattoo as one of their top five. It would have been maybe one mm-hmm. of their top ten. As the PGA, they still have 10 slots. That's why it's it's a little broader. Um, mm-hmm. the, the King's Speech, we should say, we said it won three. It actually won four Oscars, picture, actor, director, and screenplay. Okay, another thing, another go back to fill in a, a gap, the girl who, the actress who played Poppy in Happy Go Lucky was Sally Hawkins. Of I couldn't course. think of her name the before, but just to go back and fill in all the blanks that we left when, we, when our minds went blank. One thing I forgot to say was I thought Andrew Garfield looking back on the social network is the best thing about the movie acting wise and I'm just horrified that he didn't get a nomination he should have mm-hmm. so I'm sorry my Prada's in the cleaners along with my hoodie and my fuck you flip flops you pretentious douchebag <laughs> I love that line <laughs> and so Justin many great lines. Timberlake is so fantastic too <laughs> Uh, I feel like a traitor. I barely mentioned True Grit, but I feel like I've said all I need to say about that on other, uh, other episodes. Yeah. yeah, we just barely even just gave uh, True Grit lip service, but I love that movie so much. It's in my top five for sure. And it's, it's astonishing, really, that it got 10 nominations. True Grit got 10 Academy Award nominations, and it was one of the most successful movies of the year financially. And one of the best things that the Coens ever did was their statement after they got those nominations. They're like, really? We don't think that we deserve that many. Right, I know, I know. And then, of course, the Academy paid them back by shutting out inside the window. Yeah, like, well, there you go. Yeah. 
They're so fickle, aren't they? The academy. You can't even like you can't look at them cross-eyed because they'll just hold a grudge against you. It's hard to imagine them not picking Inside Lewin Davis with five nomination slots because you'd think that some of them would have at least put it at their number one. But you can also kind of understand why they didn't with only five nomination slots. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, right. You can. For all the reasons we talked about before, it was yeah. it wasn't their cup of tea, and you know it, it didn't set right with a lot of them for all kinds of reasons. They had an, an, they expected a different different kind of movie, and the movie that they got instead of the movie they expected uh, got under the skin in the wrong way because it's not about success; it's about failure. Yeah, that's so true. Mm-hmm. And honestly, time is a flat circle. <laughs> I'm sorry to have to keep saying that, but it really is. It's a flat circle. When I think of this year's Oscar race. 2010 it just all melds into one honestly and it's really hard to these these most recent years that we've been talking about they all fold up on each other don't they it's like mm. an accordion that's been squeezing and so that's why all the years it seems like they're it's every the time is speeding up and everything is like compressed and overlapping yeah. in my head i know me too me too and then next year is um next year is the artist oh god I don't even feel like doing the next few years. We just lived. <laughs> It'll be so that. refreshing to go back to the 1940s, won't it? It really will. I just don't even <laughs> want to finish out this <laughs> these years. It's like, we're, it's like the last few. This is the last few hundred meters of the marathon we've been running. This 30-mile marathon we've been running. God. So it's Hugo and the artist next time, and then it's and then it's Argo and Lincoln, and then it's and then it's. Uh, 12 years a slave it's like the, we're getting to the point where these wounds are still raw the wounds that we're feeling from these most recent years have not even healed yet and we have to <laughs> reopen them to talk about them but we don't have to do 2013 do we i mean <laughs> I don't know. we just did we'll, 2013 we'll think about it. all right because we just did that 12 years a slave year well it might be kind of fun to talk about it in terms of the critics because that was the year i thought the critics was epic fail Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we can talk about that, and we can always do what we also do. We can talk about the movies that, for some reason, didn't make the cut at all. Right. You know, some of the movies that Oscars overlooked altogether. Right. Okay. All right. <laughs> Just when I think I'm out, they pull me back in. You've been listening to episode seventy-one, part two of Oscar Podcast of the Year two thousand ten, with Craig Kennedy from Living from Awards Daily TV and Sasha Stone and Ryan Adams from AwardsDaily.com. Can follow us on Twitter at Oscar Podcast, and we will try to be back next week. The bumper music was Ball and Biscuit by The White Stripes, which opens the social network. And baby, you're a rich man, which closes the social network. Thanks for listening.